get follow up about the stove? You got follow up about the stove. I'm just I'm covered in shame. <laughs> is that what that is? <laughs> Dander. We call it secret shame. We call it secret shame. <laughs> wow, you are so good, man. If I wanted to start taking Fridays off, would you sit in for me? Like Carson's Carson style? What are what are you doing Fridays? I don't know, but you can just do me. You do me better than I do me. You know my you know my bits better. Yeah, but that's your bits are, are just a small portion of <laughs> of the whole the really? whole experience of you. Yeah, give me a couple <laughs> give me a couple other bullets. I don't I don't know. I'm not privy to that part. Like there's all I know is uh on air Merlin and uh seeing a bunch of nerds in san francisco once a year merlin i have no idea of daily family man merlin hmm. yeah no see here's the thing with you and this is this is why i'm hesitant to ever bring anything up with you is i feel like you you know like I, I talked before about how i thought you know part of what makes you so interesting is like you you only take out enough to beat them like when you have a when you have a, a debate or an argument with somebody you don't go straight to like the the worst thing you can think of or the, you know, you answer point by point. If somebody brings up a point, you know, it's like fencing. But like, I always have this sneaking suspicion that you actually have something you really would like to say. What do you think I'm holding back? I don't um, know. It, I, I, it keeps me up at night. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I yeah. don't, I, I'm terrified to know what your actual opinion of me is. No, it's fine. Mm. It's fine. It's, it's, well, you know I like you. You've heard me talk enough. It's, it's like... Well, no, you, I don't want to sound... Better, better than my opinion of myself, right? <laughs> really? Yeah, that's the whole thing, I right? feel so bad about my stove now. I mean, I'm covered in all kinds of shame and dander. Yeah, so, well, you should actually follow up on that because I... I mean, it's fresh in my mind because I just got done listening to the most recently released episode in which we talk about your stove. So now it's a real thing that actually happened because now that I've listened back to it. Right. Um, and I want, and that was now, I don't know, two weeks ago or whatever. And I want to know what happened with that. How's, how's your stove doing? Uh, I haven't done anything about it yet. So you're just living in a house with no working oven. The, the rain, the range works. You're using the range. It's fine. Mm-hmm. The, pilot, s- the pilot still goes out sometimes. Uh, no, you know, it's better. It's, the pilot stuff is fine. Yeah. No, no, the, the inside part is not working. My wife is being nice about it. She's not making a big deal about it, but she's she's on a thing where she's trying to make new, nice, healthy foods. And like even tonight, she got a new book from Amazon. She's leafing through it, and she goes, hmm, these are really good. Unfortunately, a lot of these require the oven. I was like, oh. <laughs> She's saying that. So here's the thing. When you hear that, you think she's saying that as like a subtle or not so subtle signal to you. But is that all in your head, or is that a real thing that's happened? I think it's both. It can't be both. What I'm getting at is that uh, do you both agree that it's your responsibility to fix the stove? I don't think it's like a like a uh, a British comedy where an old couple is. It's like not like an handicap thing. I don't think she's deliberately digging at me. No, it's probably mostly me. But so so we had the conversation, and I also listened to the episode, and I realized I sounded like a crazy person. And then you made me that you made me what you said caused me to feel like a horrible person because not only is my oven broken, but now I, I'm I'm mad at the Chinese man who I, I thought broke it. I still think maybe he broke it. But like then you made me think I, I didn't have stove vigilance. I, I didn't take care of my stove. <laughs> well, but he he might have broken it. Like, I, I know, know he all... broke it, John. It worked until he came and then it broke know. and he wouldn't you, admit you, it. You said this is like the type of thing that was just on the edge of the thing that you think you could fix yourself. But did you make any attempts at it before you called anybody or did you just 
you know. Well, I did I did things like well here's you know hmm. you, thinking, you, you hit it with your elbow Fonzie style. Hey. Nothing happened. <laughs> Works on the jukebox. I don't hey, know. hey. Uh, I went to comb my hair, but I was like, you know, hey, I look great like how it is. Uh, and then you know what it was? It was um, if it had not in my mind represented a safety hazard. I mean, part of it was inconvenience, but mostly it's like you just hear these stories about, I think I've heard you say this, like, you know, if you think, yeah, you said this, like if you smell the gas, like don't turn on a light, right? Because that could be the fuse that that sets off your house bomb. And so that kept going through my mind. I don't think it was anywhere near that bad, but now I'm thinking, well, and that's so anyway, that's why I called the professional because I thought even if I get this thing, if I fix it at the kind of top layer of the problem stack and it, it, the pilot light's not going out because I've like, you know, made it connect better or cleaned it out. I bet I was like, I, mean, I should still have somebody look at it who can walk in and go, look, you should get out of the house immediately. This is terrible. So that's mainly why I called. Cause you know, if it's something like I said, if it's something like a toilet thing or a sink thing, I can usually take a throw at it. But you know, it was because I was worried about the safety part. Now I'm again worried about the safety part because I'm thinking like, okay, great. Now that the quote unquote safety valve is broken, is our house filling with gas? So we can have a competition to see which one of us can let uh, festering house problems fester the longest because I'm I'm pretty fantastic at that. Are you really? Yeah. And for you, it's your enemy is moisture. Uh, my my whole house is my enemy, but like, uh, you know, so we, I got the outside of my house redone like last summer. Oh, I remember. And uh, we, I think we talked about this. And the, the inside trim around the newly replaced front door, like they didn't have the trim to match our trim and the trim they took off, they couldn't put back on because it was like notched out in a way that it wouldn't fit and blah, blah, blah. And I said, just leave it. Just don't put any trim around it. Well, my front door on the inside still has no trim around it. Is that purely aesthetic or is it letting air in? It's not letting air in. It's fine. It's all, you know, it's all sealed up. It's it's purely aesthetic, basically. But it look, really does look awful. Um, but it's on the inside. People can't see it on the outside. And we just live with it because... Secret shame. A, a whole host of, of things are preventing us from, from fixing it. A lot of which has to do with, you know, that my wife and, and me, to some degree, we want it to look like it used to. But the trim that's in our house is not a standard trim you can buy. And making custom trim costs a tremendous amount of money, which we found out exactly how much money. And then we had to like, Ugh, well, how much do you really want the trim to look like it used to look? Do you want it this much money? And so we just continue to just do nothing. Um, I mean, I think we just leave that like that for years. And so, I mean, part of the frustration must be that like it, you know, just kind of psychically it doesn't look finished it doesn't look like the job is done you went no, through all of that it, you it still you still have to live with that that uh crooked sighting outside that they didn't take the time to get right and now inside it's unfinished and you walk through it every day yeah i mean everything in my house is falling apart right so it fits in with the rest of the decor which is falling apart style i don't know is that a style uh, sure. uh, oh no we're, we we live it you have like the peeling paint and and uh, wallpaper and scuffed well, up wood. You like, know what it is. You you I don't know. I don't know if you meant to do this, but you you kind of left me with a very like sort of effective enduring image, which is the idea of like the right angle or plum. And you know, it's if a professional person does something at or to your ho- your home, you would like to think it's going to be what? What are some words we can think of? A, uh, symmetrical. That it's going to be, uh, if it was a right angle before, it should be a right angle. If it wasn't a right angle before, can we make it look like a right angle now? Like, you don't want things in your house that look like the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And so, like, you have to then, you know, you got to live with that or whatever. But our house is very old. So you talked about peeling. We get peeling. We get cracking. We get bubbling. We get slight buckling. 
uh, it's it's becoming uh, sort of non-Euclidean in lots of small ways. Oh, yeah. Nothing on our house is, is straight. I was excited recently. This was like maybe six months ago. I finally discovered – I mean, it's not like I discovered. I hadn't thought about it that much, but it, it occurred to me why a particular area of failing paint on my ceiling was failing because it always bothered me. I'm like, look, paint is failing all over this house. Everything is a mess. And for the most part, interior painting seems like such an easy job, but then you consider what it would take to, like, move everything out of the room. You know what I mean? Because you can't paint with all the furniture and the stuff in there, and then it right. just becomes, oh, it's too much of a hassle. The painting um, itself is not that hard. It's all the, the prepping and the moving and all that stuff. Right, exactly. That's, you know, it's just a massive inconvenience. So it's like, or we could just live with peeling paint, right? But there's one area where there's peeling paint on the ceiling. I'm like, why the hell is that spot have peeling paint on the ceiling? I'm like, is there water getting in? Because we always think, like, water getting in from the outside. But I'm looking at where it is. I'm like, there's no sort of creases in the roof there and it is actually farther away from the wall so it's not close to the wall so if, how could water be getting just to that spot and it's been like this for years like you know we've been in this house for 12 years or something 13 years uh, and I, it finally occurred to me the other day it's because the microwave is over there and the microwave when it's on has a fan that blows hot steamy air out the back of it and it eventually finds its way up to the ceiling at that exact spot and I felt so much better. I'm like, oh, thank God, water isn't infiltrating in my house. It's just the stupid microwave steaming the paint off my ceiling slowly. I felt so much better. That's oh, basically yeah. the level, the level of my, <laughs> the level of the, the hovel that I live in. I'm excited when I learn a reason for <laughs> the the peeling paint. Well, I, I, my my other reason, I want to share my other reason, which I've always known, but it always fascinated me. It was that it, it never occurred to me that this would be a thing. Uh, we have uh, the decor of our house is like very gross. Like we don't have any nice anything. Um, and we have kids because they would destroy everything. But anyway, we don't have any nice anything. So we have these lights. You know, like this, those, those floor standing lights that college kids get. Oh yeah, it looks it makes it look a little like a funeral home. They're like they're, they're like a big stick with a upside down yeah. mushroom on the top. Exactly right. And so we have we have two of those. We've had a series of those that our children have destroyed. But the latest round that have survived for a pretty long time uh, so far are in the the room that the kids are most frequently in. Um, and they're kind of in one is in the corner of the room and one is sort of along the same wall on the opposite end of the room. Uh, and yeah, they look like at a radar dish pointed up at the ceiling and they have like a fluorescent light bulb. They used to be halogen light bulbs, but then they burned down too many kids dorms rooms, So they mostly changed them to fluorescent that points up at the ceiling out in like a cone facing upward. Uh, and the UV I'm assuming from those lights has just destroyed the paint in like, you can trace the circle of like, where does a circle of light from this hit the wall and the ceiling? totally destroyed the paint from the area yeah it's amazing it's like and you look at where the other light is oh it's destroying the paint over there too um and then the other main paint point is where the laundry baskets rub against the door frames Uh, as people go in and out exactly at the level i know i know exactly what you're talking about and it's so we have things we have tons of things like that we have things like where when we do the sous vide or especially when we make coffee the steam goes straight up onto this cabinet that's now starting to bulge a little bit because it's it's like a little existential sponge which I guess is a sponge. Uh, and so you get things like that. You certainly get these certain kinds of wear patterns, right? You can see this one dirty spot on the rug where you're walking. Or like one, the one that's been driving me crazy, honey, honey, you can splash, but keep it in the tub. Please keep it in the tub. Please keep it in the tub. Please keep it in the tub. And now, this started about six months to a year ago, the tile, and it's just, you know, it's like one big vinyl flooring. It's not even tile. But the vinyl flooring in our bathroom, what started out as like a... Akai's Power Tools page curl has now like turned on to, into this like full on CGI effect next to the tub where the, the 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 flooring is now like two inches up. It's it's so it's like a trailer in Florida. But you know what it is? All these things, all these little things, they start off so small, and it makes me think of what the Grand Canyon. 
It makes me think of the Snake River. It makes me think of like this used to be a rock and then water just all, – all that had to happen was water hit it for a few years and then suddenly it was the Grand Canyon. So now it's just – and then, of course, then your mind reels with thinking like how is this going to look in a year? Is it going to be like – is it going to structurally harm my house that these UV rays are going to like shoot through the ceiling? It's going to be like a searchlight? <sighs> yeah, you start thinking of those – you know, like those uh – bronze i guess they are usually uh statues that people always like rub the toe of the statue as they go by and the toe eventually becomes like this highly polished you know it slowly wears away at that spot or yeah. stone statues you know but just repeated actions over a long period of time by humans ruin everything and i mostly spend my time thinking about my fantasy retirement home which i always picture looking like my my father's father my grandfather my father's side his house that he moved into when he was retired was like a museum like everything first of all it didn't have a lot of stuff in it so not a lot of clutter the things he did have were meticulously arranged everything was always like spotlessly clean it's almost like you couldn't believe that anybody lived there it looked like a a model home but 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 nicer um it's because there was no little kids running around destroying all of his stuff and when people were there he probably knew how to fix this one one little bit of something like this part of the railing isn't nice anymore so now i'll just repair repair well, with this it, piece the, of it the thing about the retirement home is you buy hopefully some kind of maybe not new construction but like newish that like basically you're going to die before the house becomes an old house sure right um and that everything more or less works and that everything is made of maintenance free materials like in other words your vinyl tile floor in the bathroom uh, the your retirement home version of that would be a recently laid beefy ceramic tile floor that was laid by someone who knows what they're doing that basically that tile floor is going to outlive you you can you can drop whatever you want on it uh nothing's going to happen you can fill the bathroom with water from top to bottom nothing is going to change that floor uh and everything is going to be in you know outside it's going to be handled by some maintenance crew because you're an old person and right. the inside you're just going to vacuum and dust every once in a while and it's basically indestructible and there's going to be no kids there to screw it up um yeah so i think about that sometimes sounds like your kids are rough on the house Kids are animals. We, uh, sometimes in the, uh, you know this, uh, we will sometimes go to uh, New England to visit family during the summer. And at some point, uh, the family, mostly grandma, who's awesome, will will rent a big house that people can stay at over like a, a month or two. And it's a great, it's really, really great. So you get this, we rent a big house. And in this case, it's in Providence. And uh, this one we were at for a couple years, um, it's right on the, I want to say, it's not Narragansett, probably on the Barrington River. And um, we, we get to this house and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's Providence. It's a very seagoing community. Well, as it turns out, this guy is a master shipbuilder. And a master shipbuilder is also a master house builder. And so we basically got to stay in the opposite of our house. Like everything about this house was exquisite. And if not handmade, like, like what, I, what I'm describing is stuff from memory where like you could see where he had recently replaced a bunch of slats outside. Like they were probably fine. He just wanted nicer ones out there. But he had that ability to like to treat it like a boat. Like if you've got a boat, you have to think of a boat as like a dying organism that must constantly be kept alive with all these repairs, right? You don't get to be me and go, oh, this house is built in 1926. I'm sure it doesn't need a new oven. So, I mean... It was so weird to be in a house like that because, like, he had built the stairs down to his basement. He made the banister for the stairs. He was a consultant on two of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies uh, for ship stuff. Like, this is what this guy does for a living. He's a master shipbuilder. It's just so weird to be in a house where, like, everything is ship shape. Like, everything is clean. Everything is plumb. Everything, like, it's all flawless. And I, I felt completely unworthy. It was amazing. What a great feeling. 
Yeah, and for your retirement house, like I said, the key is that you just need to find some place to live that is like that and made of durable enough materials that they will outlast you. They don't need to last forever. It's not as if you're going to say, well, this house in 100 years will look great. Nope, just needs to outlast you. And it's so much easier to do when you get to that age. Um, and, you know, you don't have kids running around doing stuff on it. But uh, in the meantime, when I live in my current house, the reason I, one of the many reasons I don't do anything about all these things that are falling down is I always think to myself, all right, so there is some associated financial costs, time costs, stress, and general just agitation associated with... Inconvenience. No matter what you do, there's going to be inconvenience. Especially like for the particular room that I'm thinking of that has all the peeling paint and the lights and everything. That's the room with the TV in it. That's the room with the couches where the kids are all the time. That's the room we spend most of our time in. I don't want to move any of that stuff. It was painful enough that I had to move my TV when they put in the windows because there's a window behind the TV or near the TV that I had to move the TV out of the way. Right. Um, and I had to move that entire, my entire like entertainment center stack and take down the TV and put it. That was painful enough. And I had to do, I did that with the speaker wires still attached because I had enough slack in them because if I didn't, I would have to refish them and everything. And so it was, or, or disconnect everything. I just don't, I don't want to go back there ever again. Right. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to do that again. I, and I weigh that against, or you could just live with peeling paint. And I say, you know what? The peeling paint doesn't affect me. No. It doesn't bother me. Uh, my house, as long as it keeps the weather out, and as long as my TV still looks nice, and, you know, it does, like, it's so much more important to me, again, with the Hobbit tendencies, to just have a nice, snuggly place to hang out and relax and do the things that I want to do. And I know some people, the peeling paint would make it so they can't even live in the house. Like, they can't even imagine living like that. But for me, when I do the the pros and cons and I weigh it, it always almost always comes out as okay, that can slide for a little longer. No big deal. Yeah, now, may, maybe yeah. different for my wife and other people who visit my house will, could see how I live and be like, "How do you live like? Is like coming this to is, someone's house no and finding dirt on the floor?" It's as bad as you say. There is no way. It's pretty bad. Uh, uh, I mean, like I, I don't know. It may be similar to your house, but you, we've all been to someone's house for the people who who. Well, I mean, you just described it. That guy, that shipbuilder guy, he wouldn't. Who would come in here and say, "What are you doing?" Like it's like again, it's like living like with your clothes and rags and dirt on the floor. <laughs> like, aren't you a civilized person? Just sweep the dirt out of your house. <laughs> Don't mind my son; he's just urinating in the sink. <laughs> exactly. No, or no, or just on the floor in the dirt. It's like it's all right. We just push that dirt into the corner sometimes. Like that's <laughs> like Gilligan's Island. <laughs> yeah. But uh, you know, different different strokes for different folks. I got to like, get it fixed. I I, I got to con- you know, and I ugh, so much I'm avoiding saying. It's just such an emotional tangle for me because you know, f- so like you you at least get even if you don't agree with you get my trust your mechanic problem because so part of the trust your mechanic problem a very small part of it is you know something could go wrong because of other people. The other part of me I'm just very like superstitious about this. Where like I. I'm just worried that if I do anything about this, other things are going to happen, and then that's just going to become like a snow. I know it's not rational, but that'll be this kind of snowball thing. Well, that's not a superstition, or that, that is a completely rational thing because, like I said, if you if you take an assessment of everything in your house and realize the sort of cascade of consequences of dealing with anything, like I mean, things doing nothing does not cure this, but the longer you put off doing something the more you can avoid triggering the cascade of like, if I fix this, then I need that. And I do that and I need this and I do this and I do that. And if I do this, I got to move this out of there. And I got to do that, you know, like, or like, I'll end up needing, you know, I can, can you get a new refrigerator into your house? What if you had to replace your washer and dryer again? What if you had to replace your stove, but now you don't have the electrical, what do you, now you have to send the electrical up there, but what if your panel can't support that? Now you got to upgrade your panel, but you can't upgrade your panel because the wires oh, aren't up to code. So they get her, but like, it's just this huge cascade of crap. And you just sort of skate along for as long as you can. But if you never think about the cascade, you'll be surprised by them looking for someone to blame. If you think about it, at least you'll kind of be prepared. Like, 
again, with our electrical panel. We knew that before we bought the house, that when we had the home inspection, like this electrical panel is underrated for your house. If you ever want to do anything remotely fancy with electricity, you're probably going to need to upgrade that panel and, uh, you know, possibly upgrade some of the wiring in the wall that might, you know, blah, blah, blah. And we know that. And we debated, like, should we do that now? Should we? And, and, you know, bottom line is we've survived 13 years in the house with it and mostly learned to deal with it, and it's fine. But that bill may come due eventually, and when it does, it won't be a shock to us. Mm. Well, so, anyway, that, so your, the status of your stove is uh, Merlin is also able to let things be broken in his house for long periods of time. So we are we are the same in that way. <laughs> so, so much of my life has been broken for such a long time. No, I'm gonna, I'll get it looked at. I'll get it looked at. Yeah, you had a good one here, episode 21. So I was I went to ask you about this. Are we officially into season three? We haven't talked about this. No, we didn't. We just we just slid right into it. Like I, I think there was more of a question mark after the first one because I was like, let's see how this is going to go. Um, but now I'm comfortable with this cadence. And you, know, you stick it out for 10 more, see how it goes? It seems sustainable. I mean, we're already into it. We've already started. We're on 21. I mean, it, breaking it up into seasons in this way, this way seems like weird at this point because now we're just kind of going. But if we want to maintain the fiction of that there are 10-episode seasons, at the very least, that gives us a point where after every 10 episodes, if one of us is like, oh, I can't do this anymore, then that's a natural stopping point, and we won't, and we won't feel guilty about it, as guilty about it. We should squeeze people for it. You know, we should, we should, uh, should kickstart it. No, no. Don't you think we should dangle it out there, have, have what they call a stretch goal? I don't think we should. I heard that cooler's not going to happen. Did you see that? <laughs> That's, boy, the Kickstarter people, I, can't, I don't understand that mindset. Right. You've, you've talked about this. Like You feel like you, you invest in it because it's a cool idea, and if it ends up happening, hooray. Right. But I forget it exists after that. It's, like I'm, I'm, it's, it's entirely like someone really wants to do whatever, and that would be cool. Here you go. They raised $13 million? Yeah, for a silly cooler idea. It's, it's it's that type of thing is entirely like the Homer's car thing. Right? Like I was every, every, I couldn't every, decide whether to go with Homer's car or idiocracy. But so so this thing, it's called the coolest cooler and it's got a place you can put a jam box, you can put an iPhone with I guess a charger. It's got a built-in blender cuz you know people love their coolers to have a blender. And I don't know what this other thing is. Is that a video camera? I don't know. And so they got 13 Point two million dollars. I mean, it's like a seventh grader's idea of what you know. If you had a class of seventh graders and said, "Come up with a cool product idea," you'd make this, and the whole class would be like, "Oh yeah, wow, a cooler with a blender and blah, blah, that would be cool." And like, but you know, these people don't like. That does sound cool, but you would never want one of those things. It would it would have all sorts of disadvantages that you're not thinking of. It is entirely cool in concept. And so people are giving the money because they like the concept. And then that switches entirely into, I gave me money. You need to give me one of these coolers. And then that switches <laughs> to, I got one of these coolers, and it's not as good as I thought it would be. You're you guys on Amazon. Off. I haven't gotten money. Yeah. The, the, whole Kickstarter, yeah, the whole Kickstarter phenomenon is, it's fascinating. It's like, I mean, it's not intended this way, and it has a good aspects of it as well but it's mostly like i want investors but i want there to be no upside for them so can you just give me money in exchange for not getting a piece of my success that would be great <laughs> and some people are like all right yeah it yeah, seems I to mean, really flip i mean because the, the pretense of so much of this crowdfunding stuff is about some kind of i don't know uh, you know bonami graciousness hey support the little guy this is great and it, it seems like that turns pretty quickly into like into some pretty ugly stuff where people feel like they basically you know place an order for a pair of socks and where's my socks 
It's like, yeah, so it, in one respect, it's like a, re- a very fancy version of pre-ordering with an excitement angle. So, like, lots of things have pre-orders. Like, hey, we're going to be coming out with this game, but you can pre-order it now if you're really excited, but you, what you don't realize is your pre-order is funding the development of the game, right? So pre-orders <laughs> are, are, are fine. But the, the other aspect is we really want to make this thing. We need your help getting it off the ground. That's called investment. Like, when you say, I really want to make the cooler with the radio thing, in it, and you, you have to raise money. But the people who give you money always say, okay, here's some money. Uh, and if you become a millionaire, I get some of that money because I'm investing in you. It's not like I'm just giving you the money and in exchange, I'm going to get one of the coolers. I mean, obviously, there's small stakes. It's a tiny investors investing a tiny amount of money, but they don't even get a tiny stake, especially like early investors where I have zero dollars. If you give me a thousand dollars right now, you could get a significant part of, you know, that's a significant investment, you know, in the beginning. Whereas if you give me a thousand dollars after I'm, uh, you know, a hundred million dollars of revenue company then that's not such a big deal, right? But in Kickstarter, you get nothing. I mean, you might not even get the product. Um, so it's it's an, it's it, all of the risk and speculation and excitement and investment with none of the potential upside of getting rich. It seems like, I don't know, John Oliver should do a thing on this. It's, it's, it sounds like it's a, it's a trap. So tell me, tell me how this works. So you go up there and you say, do you, do you have to have a prototype or can it be, like in the case of Pebble, they had a finished product and was basically pre-ordering, but how mature... Is it the kind of thing you could take onto Shark Tank, Does it, or can it just be conceptual at the time that you put it on? I don't. I don't think you need anything. All you need to have is a, a page and a video and a thing you want to do, and people want to give you money. I mean, so like it's the way I described it makes it sound like it's evil, but a lot of the time it's like I'd really like to make uh, uh, you know a cool thing that cuts cookie dough into the shape of whatever. Um, and if you th- think that would be cool too, give me some money, and at the end of it, all of us people who think it's cool and gave money will all get this cool cookie cutter. Best case. Worst case, it doesn't work out and we don't make our money. So it's not like no one is getting rich off this. It's just like if, if no one gives any money, this is never going to be a thing because it's so frivolous or silly or whatever. No one wants to make one. But I want to make one. And if I get 100 other people who also want to make one, guess what? We'll have enough money we can make and we could all get cookie cutters, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's the, that's Kickstarter as, at its best where – and that's the type of things I invest in. Like the, the one most recent one I can remember was someone who wanted to take high-quality photographs of classic video game consoles. And then put them up online for free for anyone to download. Oh, that's um, a new project, yeah. Right, and it's like a video game museum. And obviously, in the process, they they will need money to buy these vintage video games from people, get them in good condition in their little photography studio and take pictures of them. But there's no upside for me. I don't get anything out of that. It's just like, I would like that to be a thing that exists on the internet. And if you, person, want to spend the next two years of your life tracking down old consoles and cleaning them up meticulously and taking nice photos of them, here, here's some money, right? That is That, I feel like, is Kickstarter at its best, but... Yeah, the same mechanism can be used by people to essentially fund my game that has, you know, I'm, I'm a, a famous game developer who could get funding anywhere, but I'm also going to get a significant portion of my money from people who just really want this game to exist. And, and they're essentially giving me thousands of dollars worth of pre-orders for right. the game. Well, it feels like, you know, it almost feels like in college, you remember uh, you fly, I buy, like you're, you're all sitting around and somebody goes, hey, you know, uh, we should get pizza. And somebody else goes, yeah, we should get pizza. And then one person says, uh, hey, you fly, I buy. Like, I will put in $20 for pizza as long as you go out and get the pizza because we all want pizza, right? We can I've, all never heard, pizza. I've never heard that expression. Oh, I, really? understand, I understand the concept, never yeah. heard the expression. But I mean, you know, uh, you fly, I buy works in that situation because we understand how to go get pizza. But, and we all think it's a good idea. Like, everybody wins, right? Uh, but the problem is, like, what if you've given your money to somebody who doesn't know how to get pizza? And it was really just a good idea. Yeah, I mean that, that's the part of the risk of Kickstarter is like that everyone is supposedly understands that 
you may be getting nothing for your money, which is kind of fine. But, you know, like, like I said, it, it really depends. on it, You get into all these weird social power dynamics where it's like, do you feel like this is just a guy who wants to take pictures of old video game equipment? Or do you feel like this is basically the man, the you know, the man took your money and didn't produce anything. And those guys, those fat cats took all this money. When the, when the big number on the page starts going up to millions, you stop identifying with the person who has the Kickstarter as he's a person just like me trying to raise money for a cool project, right? And you start thinking, this is now a millionaire, and I hate him because I'm not a millionaire. And why does he get to be a millionaire? And at the end of it, if nobody gets anything, all you see is they got millions of dollars and we got nothing, even though they probably spent all of that money trying to make the product and failing. You know, like, that's why any business fails. Like, you get a lot of money, you try to use it to produce an end, and you fail. Um, but the Kickstarter page just sits there with that with that huge number with all those commas in it just staring at you and just breeds resentment into all the people who gave you five bucks for the, you know... The little cookie cutter they never got or whatever. I should kickstart my stove. That would, no, that would be more like a Patreon or a GoFundMe, I guess. Yeah, by the way, my wife uh, expressed skepticism that your stove is 15 years old. Because our stove is 15 years old, and it is it is not so old that it doesn't have a clock. It's a rental. The yeah. stove is a rental? <laughs> they do rent a... Uh, furniture and uh, appliances i imagine <laughs> you should look to see how old your stove actually is. take a picture of your stove and i can help but probably you should be able to find a year stamped on the thing somewhere that's like the worst pbs show i can think of <laughs> John it's like antiques roadshow when you take the thing exactly. to the person and and the guy just has to tell you that this is crap like this has no you see on the bottom where it says copyright 1993 right <laughs> <laughs> what a great PBS show. You, you just send a picture to John, and then he, he makes remarks about whatever you sent him. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you by Squarespace, the simplest way for anyone to create a beautiful landing page, website, or online store. You can start building your website today at squarespace.com, and you can enter the offer code DIFFS, that's D-I-F-F-S, at checkout. That will get you 10% off your first purchase. With easy-to-use tools and templates, Squarespace helps you capture every detail of what drives you because if it's worth the effort, it's worth sharing with the world. Squarespace puts all the power you need into your hands, takes away the pain points like worrying about hosting, scaling, or what to do if you get stuck with something. With Squarespace, you can build a site that looks professionally designed regardless of skill level with no coding required. Squarespace has state-of-the-art technology that powers your site and that ensures security and stability. Squarespace are trusted by millions of people and some of the most respected companies, and brands, and people, and podcasts in the world. Their site templates are stunning to look at, and they all feature responsive design. That means your site is going to look great on any device at any size. It's just the best. That that used to be a lot of work, and now they'll do that work for you because they're Squarespace, and this is the kind of thing that they do. This is just getting started. Squarespace has tons of awesome features. They have 24 by 7 support with live chat and email. They have their commerce platform that allows you to add a store to your Squarespace site and sell stuff on it you know, like like a store does. You have the cover page functionality. You can build great-looking single-page websites, rock-solid, fast hosting, and so much more. And if you want to stretch Squarespace even further, you got to check out their dev platform. You can dig, you can literally, literally dig into the code for your site and tinker with the way that it works. Squarespace will let you do that. They give you a special hole you put your hands in to do it. Ask about it. They'll, they'll, they'll tell you more. Cool part is if you sign up for a year, you also get a free domain name allowing you to choose exactly what you want your site to be called. This is a really good deal you should do. You should totally sign up for a year. And the craziest of all, Squarespace plans start at just $8 a month. That's hardly any money at all. It's almost embarrassing. 
So go today, start a trial with no credit card required. Start building your website today. Just go to squarespace.com. Now, when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, sign on the dot dotted line as you do. Make sure to use the offer code DIFFS, that's D-I-F-F-S, and that will get you 10% off your first purchase, and it will show your support for our program, Reconcilable Differences. We thank Squarespace for their support of this show and all of Relay FM and all of the great shows. Squarespace. Squarespace. We, uh, I think we have, we have a topic tonight. This one's yours. Yeah, well, it's, it's both of ours. Yeah, you're right. It's your show. Um, no, I, I think this is, I, I, this is another one where I don't exactly understand it, but I think I understand it, and I'm, uh, I'm interested to see where you're going to take this uh, little football. How can, how can you not understand it? All right, so... The topic is meeting your heroes. Yeah, this was not spawned by your recent uh, revelation to me that you had met R.E.M., and I, you know, you just yeah. recently did a podcast on unjustly, unjustly maligned about REM. I haven't listened to it yet, um, but it's the opposite of the normal thing where you're telling why REM is great. And I agree, I like REM too. Um, and you threw off that you had met them. I don't know if they're your heroes or whatever, but I, I listed some people down there. But I mean, I guess we could start with pick whoever you want. You don't have to pick REM or whatever, but like meeting your heroes, thinking about, you know, first putting someone in the category like this person is one of my heroes. Like I. Uh, you know, you, you admire them, you, you admire their work, you just you look up to them, whether it's from a young age or as an adult or whatever, and then you think about meeting them, and then it, maybe it actually happens. Or maybe it never does happen, but, like, just pick a person and, and a story and tell me what you think about that whole phenomenon. Yeah, well, one part about the phenomenon that's interesting and that changes a lot, I mean, have you ever had those experiences as a post, like, 20-year-old person? You have these experiences and you say, like, oh, man— if only this could have happened to me when I was X years old, right? And, and that could be meeting people, you know, it could be getting to like go to a theme park, you know, in your 30s. But there, you have these experiences where I always feel like sometimes there's a moment where I go, wow, this would have meant, you know, even so much more to me when I was younger. Because I think part of the meeting your hero part that's interesting is, well, there's the hero part, we'll, you know, however we're going to define this. But a hero being somebody who you, who you like and maybe somebody who you admire. But another big part that makes this interesting is the distance, and the unlikelihood that you ever would meet them is part of what makes it interesting. Like, if you happen to live next door to Gerald Ford, you know, that might not be on your mind all the time, right? Do you know what I mean? Like, part of it is that the, like, seeming impossibility of this ever happen happening is, is part of what makes it so interesting. Don't you think? Yeah, I'm trying to think of heroes, like, from childhood versus adulthood versus the internet age. And they're, they're, they're I think they're very different. Childhood, childhood heroes definitely have the distance thing. Like, I wasn't... I didn't have many sports heroes because I wasn't that into sports as a kid. I mean, I guess it was, you know, like Steve Jobs and the people who made the original Macintosh are the first people I can remember being like heroes to me as a child, right? Because I had seen what they had made and I had read enough of the, you know, hagiography about the original Mac team and about Apple and about all those people that I, you know, I, I, they were my heroes because they had done this amazing thing and because I could relate to them and they're like, they, they, I would love to grow up to be like them in the same way that someone might say, I would love to grow up to be like Reggie Jackson or whatever, like, you know, a, a, a star of a sport that a kid is particularly interested. In. They're really into baseball and they see him hit three home runs in the world series. And they say, I, you know, I want to be like Reggie Jackson when I grow up, he's my hero. Right. Well, so I was saying that about the original Mac team, but I don't, <laughs> did you have like a Bill Atkinson poster? I did have the original Mac team on my wall. It wasn't a poster. It was pages cut out of uh, of Macworld magazine. I don't know if they made posters. I remember you talking about that on the uh, Memorial episode. Yeah, a, a bunch of a bunch of pictures like that are on my wall. And like, 
and I was maybe I would think about like I didn't think about meeting them in quite the same way as you think about meeting you know a, a baseball star you get them to like sign a baseball for you or whatever like that I just thought that they they had done an amazing thing and I, I looked up to them and I idolized them right and then the next phase is like celebrity type things and I I guess that would have to be like rock star type celebrities maybe you know good old my good old uh, Trinity uh, U2RM Bruce Springsteen you admire their work so much but there's a different component to it because they're they're famous they're like rock stars right um and they have screaming fans and there's that type of thing you think about what it might be like to meet that type of person and i think that is a different for me anyway a different thought process like because i think i would i don't know like you could you can imagine the difference between meeting and spotting you can imagine spotting them versus meeting them um and stuff like that and those are I, i think those are the two things that stick out to me is like rock and roll stars and people whose work you admire. And mm-hmm. this is mostly still from childhood, but I think it depends on the person. Like, do you dwell about what it might be like to meet them? Or do you mostly just think about how amazing the thing they did made was or, or whatever? Like, did you, did you ever imagine what you might say to a famous person, either as a kid or as an adult? I think so. And, and, you know, I, I, um, I realize this might all sound a little bit bananas, but you know, I, I think the, the it's it's one thing to admire somebody, but why do you want to meet them? Do you really have something you need to say to them? No, I think that again, I, I might be beating this to death, but I think there's two parts. The, the, I think one part is that for a celebrity, like a hero, it's it is part of that. You know, it's so far away and so impossible. But the other part of it is when you talk about like the Reggie Jackson component of it is like I think what we want is I think. We want other strangers to want to meet us as much as we want to meet a famous stranger. And there's that element of like rubbing off kind of. I don't know if that's exactly the right word. Probably could choose a better phrase than that. But you know what I mean? There's part of that feeling of like there's something a little bit magical about the spotting of somebody and about, you know, meeting somebody. One time at Pixar, uh, Garth Brooks opened a door for me. And it was very, very strange. I was, I was there to do a talk, and he just happened. They have celebrities are all over the place at Pixar, and and one day I was leaving an I was leaving an auditorium with my host, and this guy who I think he was wearing like sweatpants or something. He uh, opened the door, and he seemed very nice and very kind. That was extremely strange. It was already double weird because I was at Pixar, which is like a pretty big deal to get to go to Pixar. But uh, Garth Brooks was there. Now that one, that one was very, very strange. I, I love those kinds of run-ins with people. Those are some of my favorites because he's not my hero. He seems like a really nice guy. But like those, but even just the fact that he was famous, you know what I'm saying? I mean, maybe I'm parsing this well, too many yeah, ways, so, but but it's yeah, just yeah. it's weird to be around somebody who you are hyper aware of, even if it's not somebody you have a particularly strong feeling about. Like it would be weird to run into Henry Kissinger in the bathroom somewhere, just because he's so hyper famous and it's so improbable to be in the presence of somebody who's that well known. It's bizarre. Yeah, that's the the sort of. Uh, you know my my favorite hobby horse evolutionary biology or uh, evolutionary explanations for everything anyway um trying to imagine why it might be that we care uh that garth brooks opened the door for you that you spotted somebody uh, a famous person that you uh, you know you you know like i was stuck in an elevator with insert famous person famous person sat next to me on an airplane did i tell you that one by the way i think i told you that one remind me my wife was on a plane flight. I th- I don't remember where she was going to. I think she was by herself on a plane flight by herself, and sitting next to her in coach for the whole flight, Bill Murray, like oh, actual yes, Bill Murray, yes, yes. Oh, the that's whole flight. So weird. 
right? And so that this is a good example. Of, I, I, I shouldn't get off on this tangent, but like I thought about, it like, are you kidding me? I mean, she's not even that big of a Bill Murray fan, right? It's the, yeah, it's the worst. But Ugh. but just for the whole flight, like, and I'm going to get into why that could be entirely paralyzing. But but anyway, the, the evolutionary angle, like, why do we care? Why do why do we care? Uh, why why is there a desire to be associated with to tell stories about that one time when i met whatever like it seems to serve no purpose and yet we all feel this incredible draw of telling people that we have been associated with somebody who everybody knows or wanting to spot or see or talk to somebody that even if we're not interested in i'm not into country music you know but everybody knows who garth brooks is i know who garth brooks is and so if he opens the door for me that's a little miniature story why am i excited by that um and it seems perfectly reasonable to me that it, for a social animal like humans are, that any kind of society that you know we're not loners, we have we have groups or whatever. If there is someone in the group who everybody else in the group knows, that is a source of power in the group. And if you know the person that everybody else knows, you are taking some of that. You are like you are power adjacent. You are by by association with them become more powerful in the in the hierarchy that's good right. it's it's like a like a physical existential photobomb like you can dive into the proximity of their bigness because so, people knowing you is powerful in social circles because people will listen to you people will look at you when you when right. you, they mention your name you'll know you that that is power in in, in in for a social animal in a society right and so you as a, uh, a nameless peon who nobody knows or just is known by like the few people who are like your friends and family as you get into a larger group if you are somebody that everybody knows that is a tremendous source of power and if you can say i'm friends with you know uh, like you know the, the throg the the big important caveman right like <laughs> You know, it What's totally. His name? What's his name? I don't know. I'm Throg? trying to think. Of... Throg, yeah, T H R O G. Yeah, maybe two G's. Throg, the important. <laughs> yeah, like, like, just I'm saying, like, it doesn't have to. You don't even need to complicate it aside. Just any kind of social animal, um, prominence <laughs> Throg, in the Throg group didn't move fast. He didn't have to move fast. Exactly right, and and like. And so why why is prominence in the group important? Well, if it's prominence in the group is is power in the group, which means you're more you're more likely to survive because and pass your genes uh, when the animals attack, everyone will, will protect Throg because they're you know, like it's just like <laughs> right, you know right. you, it, there are there are reasons why your your genes have a higher chance of being passed on to future generations if you are somebody that everybody knows or you know somebody that everybody oh so knows, many reasons right? and it's not just seduction community reasons it's also just that you have more connections you're a most more social animal you're more likely to you know bump into people let's say right that people will listen to your opinions there's also something a little not godlike about it i'm trying to avoid that but have you ever been like i mean like i've encountered a lot of famous people in my life uh, often randomly, but like the first, like when you see somebody, uh, okay, here's a random one. My girlfriend and I, 1989, my girlfriend and I are at, uh, went to see Torch Song Trilogy in the theater while we were, you know, at the cinema when we were in Manhattan. Kevin Seals from MTV was there. I think he was a little high and he was in the front row. And it was a pretty big deal because he's that, that stony guy from TV. And it, I, I remember having the same feeling I would always have in those situations, which is like, First of all, it's so weird that this person is here and doing like a normal thing, but also they always look smaller than you expect. I know that's a cliche, but but it really is true. Their head you're looks one, bigger. You're one to talk. What are you talking about? <laughs> what are you talking about? I'm, I'm very you, near the average height. You're pocket size. Oh, come on. Dan, Dan Benjamin is a little guy. All right. but you, All right. All right. So you hang out with him. You feel big. What about, did you watch the Oscars the other night? I did. What, what, did you know that Kevin Hart guy is that size? Oh, yes, I did. I did know he's very tiny. I, they say, I checked the websites. They say he's 5'4". I'm here to tell you, buddy. 
he ain't no five four. I, I've seen pictures of him with uh, with the girl who does the cup song, uh, and Anna Kendrick. She, she's like three inches taller than him. I think that guy. I think yep. that guy might be four eleven. He's very small. He's like smaller than Wolverine. Yeah, but, but you see somebody, and I am not a small man. I'm a very average sized man, I'm strong like bull. But, uh, but, but that's a common thing. And so, no, it's not exactly like a deity thing or a royalty thing. But there is something like a presence that's very strange. And I, I don't know if that relates to the evolutionary thing. But well, I mean, the, the evolutionary angle is that this is a feeling we all have super strongly, and yet there's no logical like explanation for it in the modern world. Like, the, but we just feel it so much. Like, it, it's the explanation for like. You know, why do people buy People magazine? Why does everyone want to know like the relationship status of Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt and, and make little names for couples? Like, Why do we care about the love life of famous, attractive people who are so distant from us? We, I mean, we all feel that so much. Like, This entire industry is built around exploiting that. And it's like, why would that be in us? It could be just a random accident, right? But it also could have been something that served an incredibly important purpose for the first 10 or 100,000 years of human development. And now, even though in the modern world it doesn't really serve as much of a purpose anymore, it is still so strongly in us sitting there that, you know, that we cater to it because we have this desire. And so, like, it, it bothers me, like, rationally speaking, why I should feel this way. And I can come up with rationalizations like, oh, I, I like those people because they sing the song that I like. Or, you know, with the Macintosh, they made this this product that I admire. And I would like to be able to achieve the, some, you know, things that they achieved, you know, whatever. You can come up with all sorts of reasons, but the other angle is Garth Brooks holding the door. It's like, I don't, I don't really care about Garth Brooks at all, but you, I'd get the same thrill about, hey, that was Garth Brooks. Why am I getting that thrill? I, I don't have control over I don't, know I don't have control is. over that. It's just one of the many things that is innate in, in most humans at this point. Um, and uh, the mistake, I think, is to try to to try to figure uh, like to try to assign real meaning to it it's better to just accept it as like and you don't even have to accept the evolutionary explanation to it but just to accept it like most humans have this feeling about whatever it's like saying most humans are like you know <laughs> afraid of dying or like uh, fear of heights is a common thing or whatever like and you don't have to like fear of heights makes a little bit more sense but like being excited by knowing somebody that a lot of other people know that's not really that beneficial in in modern society. I would think maybe maybe it is. Maybe I'm 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 not uh, accounting for all the different ways that uh, that uh, genes get passed on. But I, I just I've either said on past podcasts I don't understand what the current evolutionary pressures are on the gene pool. They're you mysterious can't to me, know, right? Uh, maybe you can. Maybe sociologists know. But like in the distant past, when humans were much more primitive and <laughs> barely had stone tools, it is a much simpler world to figure out what the pressures are, and we have much better models because we study animals who are you know, at even lower stages of, uh, of sophisticated civilization and society to understand what, what is advantageous. I mean, so anyway, that, that is always in the back of my mind that like, this is basically a silly, useless thing that we all have inside of us that nevertheless manifests. And I don't battle against it, but I also don't assign, try not to assign any particular import to it. Like, Oh my God, it would just make my life if I could meet this famous person. But yeah. Like so, for the most part, I set that aside. But the, the the main reason I put this thing in here is the more modern manifestation of meeting your heroes in basically in the internet age mm -hmm. and in the age of me doing podcasts with people and stuff like that is it's much more likely now for me in my life with my particular heroes to actually have a chance of meeting people that i admire right um 
And that, in many ways, is terrifying. It's like getting back to my wife's Bill Murray flight. Can you imagine being on a, a two-hour flight, sitting next to Bill Murray and coach the whole time? No one else is there. Your kids aren't there distracting you. Your wife isn't there. There's no one. There's no one in the third seat. It's just you and Bill Murray. But Bill, you, you know, but Bill Murray, Bill Murray in particular. I mean, he is an especially thorny case because I mean that's super complex for me. Because first of all, okay, whatever. He's Bill Murray from Saturday Night Live and all those other things. But he's also like like Bill Murray, like, wow, like such a hero to me for so many years and in so many different guises. But also, let's be honest, he's Bill Murray. He's the guy who does not like interviews and he's a little bit of an agent of chaos. And so with all those things together, like I would be at war with myself for two hours, mostly just going, just begging, having one part of my brain begging the other part to just please curl into a tiny ball and do not pay any attention to him. What does she do? So I, I, when I asked her, like, again, because she's not, she's not as paralyzed as either one of us would be, because, I mean, she likes Bill Murray, he's funny and everything, but she's, I think, more immune to his celebrity and his fame and his import or whatever, but she's still in the same situation. It's like, so what do you say? Because I think all of us are, you know, wimpy introverts are like, you don't, your first instinct is do not bother him. Like, don't, nothing I have to say out of my stupid mouth is going to be interesting to Bill Murray. He's heard it all before a million times. Don't say anything to him. But on the other hand, you're thinking, when am I ever going to have two hours of Bill Murray essentially trapped next to me? Like, why, why uh, should I not have, have a conversation? And then the other hand, you go, but I shouldn't bother him. Oh, no, but, no, that, that's, a but, bad, that's a bad way to go. Well, then you just keep going back and forth. But he's here, but now it might seem like I'm ignoring him. But what if he starts talking to me? And you go back and forth. And basically, like I said, you know, like, like you said, we just spend the whole time not saying anything. You'd be at war with yourself the whole time. And this is this heated battle inside your mind. And then Bill Murray would be blessedly sitting over there um, and not doing anything. And obviously, celebrities and people who are actually like famous, where everyone they sit next to on a plane has a very good chance of knowing who they are. They've obviously dealt with this a million times and have usually come to some sort of arrangement with themselves about how it's going to go. So yeah. in, in the end, I feel like no matter what you do, are they the type of person who says, you know what, I'll talk to anybody who wants to, who's a fan? Then that's going to happen. Are they the type of person who says, you know what, I'm sick of talking to fans. If anyone tries to talk to me, I have a whole series of, it's like a script from a telemarketer. or have a series of steps in my script, which basically lets them know in no uncertain terms that you're not going to have a conversation with me. Then that's going to happen to you. Nothing you can do really is going to change the outcome, except for perhaps if it, uh, actually, yeah, probably even staying silent isn't going to help. So whatever's going to happen with that celebrity is going to happen. And what you do is not going to change the fact. Because if they're a chatty type person and they say like, oh, I just love talking to a fans. As soon as they realize you're a fan, they're going to start talking to you. And what are you going to do? Not talk back? So whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And in the end, I don't think uh, choosing what you're going to do would make that much of a difference. But I can tell you that I would be thinking really hard, like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Uh, you know, because you, you want to you want to talk <laughs> to them. Very quietly say, here's a Cinderella boy, tears in his eyes, I guess. <laughs> yeah, no, you don't, you don't want to be quoting lines, I love lines, when you right? quote their lines back to them. <laughs> right, they haven't heard that one before. Um, Big hit of the lemma. <laughs> like, and then you're trying to be like clever, like, because you're a clever person, like, oh, well, oh can, right. can I ask Bill Murray that he's never been asked before, where the answer is nothing, right? <laughs> like, you know, or... Can I just relate to him as a regular person? But then for me, specifically, and probably for you... That comes off so creepy. That comes off so creepy. But relating to someone as a regular person, like, oh, they're not Billy, they're just a regular person. You know what I do to regular person, people? I never talk to you them. don't talk to them. No. That's how I treat regular people. So, like, that, no, if I ever exactly. came to that conclusion, I would be like, I don't, if I have a plane flight next to, you know, when I fly to, like, WWC, and if I'm not on a flight with anybody I know or not sitting next to anybody... 
I don't talk to that person the whole flight except for to say, excuse me to get up and go to the bathroom or whatever. That's it. Right? Yeah, I make, uh, I've talked to Roderick about this a lot. I mean, I make, I make a point of being very quietly super polite at the beginning and then instantly sending, as John would say, throwing every shape that I can that I really don't want to have a conversation. And if I'm asked something, I will, you know, I will answer it. And I'll frequently do that thing where you take out one, one earbud and go, huh? You know, and I, just to, just to kind of, you know, and then at the end, I will say uh, something nice and I'll try to be polite, but you got to be careful how you open that door. You would never do that with, with another person. Like, ugh. Um, what was the other thing I was thinking? You just sent me something and confused me. Um, the other thing is that, you know, it's, it's, it, it's, it's a funny, like an improv kind of bit that like the more you try, and this is so, so hard for men. It's and it's such a funny thing. The harder and harder that you try not to seem like a creep, the creepier and creepier you seem. Even if you're not yeah. a creep, and because you know what, you're very likely to say to somebody, you know what, you're extremely likely to say to somebody at the moment when you most want them to know that you're not being creepy. You know what you say? You know what you say? You say, "I don't want to seem creepy." I would never say that. You would say that. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> I know not to say that. Come on, that's like that's like not being creep one hundred and one. I don't, I don't mean to seem creepy, but no, nothing good can come after that. Mm, there's a there's a person in town that I have to interact with uh, about once a month or so, and it's each time it's just like a white knuckle moment. Just it's so brutal. This guy <laughs> really wants me to know that he's not creepy, and he's so incredibly creepy. Is, is this Scott Simpson? You can say it's Scott Simpson. It's Scott Simpson. Well, that actually reminds me of a funny story. As long as I'm in Dick Cavett mode. One time, um, uh, Simpson and Hodgman and me went out to dinner at this place in town called House of Prime Rib, which is this fun place you go for Prime Rib. And uh, this was not too long after Hodgman had been doing the Apple ads. He, he had stopped doing it, but he was still kind of you know fairly well known just from the Apple ads, the Mac ads. And um, and so we went in like we did, I don't think we had a reservation. We showed up at this place, and like like a bunch of people there recognized John, and some diners recognized John. And I don't say this in a snooty way, but just because it's funny for the story, they ended up jamming us into like, basically a deuce, like like a two person table. They put the three of us at this really like, kind of lousy table, and the server knew who John was. I'm not saying he's like a super celebrity, but it was funny enough that people recognized John from things. But uh, and this maitre d came out, and he was like. You know what, uh, John? He was like, if you wanted to have a, a gay maitre d, like an over the top, like Paul Lynn, like Rip Taylor type, over the top gay maitre d, and then a nineteen seventies show for like a Christmas special. That's this guy, and he came out and and he was just making it all about him. And he's going from table to table to table, and it was all just really weird. And uh, but and the funny part was that at, toward the end of the meal, I think we were already like like waiting for the check. I think his name was Rudy. And uh, or something like that. But anyway, he came back out and he says, "Ah, yes, I, I am informed by my staff that you are uh, very famous, and I wanted to say thank you very much for coming in tonight." It was like it was, but it was completely awkward and so weird. And, and like he found a way to still make it all about him, and it was just creepy. I mean, you know, send a send a free dessert. You know, uh, send a send a fernet or or a whiskey or something. For a free dessert slice, you mean? Sure. Yeah. Have I ever been there with you? I've been to House of Primer many times. No, I think the... No, no I, I thought I, I missed the time that you went. I wasn't with you guys that time. Yeah. Well, we'll make it happen this time. Yeah, I don't know. Who knows if I'll even be going out there. Oh, no, sorry. Understood, understood. Yeah, yeah so I don't know. Okay, so getting back to the topic. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think. So as a child, you were interested in the Macintosh team 
potentially sports stars. Did you have an idea in your head? I mean, so I, which is, this is not to say that just because someone is your hero or a celebrity that you want to meet them. But is there anybody you really wanted to meet for some reason when you were a kid, apart from like Santa? Is there anybody you really like you really felt like it was you? It was your destiny to like meet this person at some point. Because I think a lot of people have people like that in their life. I definitely didn't feel like it was my destiny. But, like, again, a lot of the original Mac team, like, you know, obviously Steve Jobs, Bill Atkinson, you know, Burl Smith, Bruce Horn, like all those people. Like, I imagine the conversations I would have about them because I would have questions for them about the Mac and what it was like to make the Mac and why they chose to do this that way and where did this come from and, you know, just questions that are like kid questions. Like, explain to me how this works because you made this thing and all all those type of things that, you know, that would – probably be insufferable to anybody because have kids asking questions but that's what you think about because with celebrities i didn't think i was ever destined to meet them but at least you felt like you could have a conversation but then right. what are you going to say to bono right what are you going to say know, to the edge I, I guess i guess the edge could show me his guitars and the different pedal setups and stuff um, I, I, met andy, but, I met andy hertzfeld uh at a party one time uh, he was very awkward it was it was kind of he was kind of delightfully awkward was it was he at a Macworld party i don't i think he might have been at a party that i was at which I is was another at thing, a like, book release party for oh for Revolution in the Valley, right? Yeah, something like yeah, that. Yeah. So this this is this is what I'm getting at is like the 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 adult version of this is that the chance of you potentially meeting these people increases. So you know, being for tech nerd type things, if you're at WWC and you yes. get to go to the tech nerd parties, chances are there might be other tech nerds you've heard of there, including you know famous old people from <laughs> from that you admired when you were kids, right? But just because they're at the party doesn't mean you're going to, I mean, if you're me, not going to say anything to them or whatever. Um, and then there is the the whole podcasting angle, which is not that this is, you know, this is the tech podcasting world that I'm, you know, in- involved in our little circle of the tech podcasting world. And it extends outward. And I am like one or two degrees separated from a lot of people that uh, I I really admire and would, would I, I could, would I could help you meet all of the people on this list tonight. <laughs> I, well, that's what I'm not, saying. These right? are not so, hard to meet yeah, at all. You are the gateway to a lot of these people. But even things like, for uh, example, someone who I know or I'm friends with now, uh, but who at, some, at one point was just a name on my screen. John uh, Rich Siegel, the creator of BBA. Oh, right. Sure. Oh, yeah, who's, of course. Whose name, whose name I saw on my screen in Chicago font, whose name I saw with an asterisk replacing the I in res edit for years and years as a kid. Or as I don't know how old I was. I guess I was still a kid. Right. And eventually meeting him. All right. And... That's that qualifies as like meeting one of my heroes, right? Um, even to this day, when I see him or we hang out, <laughs> occasionally I still get a little thrill of like that's the guy who made BB Edit, right? And he's just he's just rich, he's just a regular person. Like the the the, the real celebrity stuff has worn off, but it still is a little bit exciting to think that. Like, and mostly it's because like every day at work I sit there and I use BB Edit, and like right, right, right. He's the guy who made like it, my entire career has been spent sitting in front of a program that he made, and like. The import of that is so huge in my mind that it's probably bigger than most people like would think of you know their favorite like uh, singing star or actor or whatever. Uh, but because I know the person, it erases right. all the like. I bet they're like this amazing person who knows everything is wonderful and perfect. Or they're just a person. Like you learn with any celebrity that you actually come to know, they're just a person. And he does, he doesn't have the burden of celebrity because most people don't know who he is or, or what BB Edit is or whatever. He's just like you know important and significant for me for this amazing thing he made but it's you know i eventually this is this is the key which i'm sure you can speak to once you know these people that other people think are famous you realize they're just people and you can yeah, i mean people. i'm trying to think now of like people 
that I would run into or, you know, I was always trying for a long time. I was, I, I really, so many people I wanted to meet. Let's, let's say around the time of like when the blog stuff, oh, these stories, I have so many stories that are so embarrassing, just oh, horribly embarrassing stories. Um, but like, for example, like going to Macworld and being to walk up, walk up to a booth or like somebody goes like, oh, this is Brent Simmons. And you're like, what? This is, this is, you're, you're telling me this is, this is Brent Simmons. This, he's here. He's like, yeah, this is him. He's like, hey, how's it going? I was like, this guy is a tall guy. This is Gus Mueller. Like, what? Like, yeah, I figured you just like, I figured you just like sat on a chair in Valhalla. I can't believe I'm meeting you. Or, you know, the most embarrassing of all time, which I've told many, many times, circa, I don't know what, maybe 90s, maybe early 2000s. I see this man across the room on the floor at Moscone. And it's it's Andy Anotko. Like, Andy Anotko is... Who, who I've read in all these? I think was it Mac Week? Was he was he with originally? Or I'm trying to remember where did Andy write before? He's, he's written for a lot of places. He's written for I mean, so he, many he wrote places, a Mac User, I think, at some point. Mac Maybe User, that Mac must be. But Andy was like he was a you know a very well known personality. One of my favorite writers on the scene, and like I, I'm a man in my 30s, and I ran up to him like I was 12 years old, and like I'm sure I tried to play it off legit and act like I was really cool and like drop some kind of reference like a total creep. And he was nice about it, but he was a little, I think, freaked out by my enthusiasm. Now, today, I consider Andy like a friend of mine. Uh, no, not like a friend of mine. I consider Andy a friend of mine, and it's not weird. But, like, that's the neat part about this. It's like maybe for you and me, it's meeting some of our, our heroes from this nerd world. Um, so another one for me in recent years is meeting people who make comics, where I've been like uh, really fortunate that like some of my slightly connected friends have you know introduced me to these other people who make my favorite things in the world. Like I got to meet Robert Kirkman. Like I, I, I mean, whatever. I don't mean to just make this a brag thing, but except to say that it is super overwhelming to go to a party and meet eight people who make your amongst the twenty people you meet that night. Eight of those people make your favorite comics of all time, <laughs> and you get to meet them. And it's like it's it's so overwhelming. And then you know the you know, 85, 90 to 90% of it is like, this person is, is so amazing and so cool. And there's this other kind of weird, not disappointing part of it. The other part of it is, but you know, they really are just a person. I mean, they didn't like, you know, turn into a Jack in the box or something like they're, they're just a person. And they're like, and in the case of Robert Kirkman, I have to say, uh, my friend who works for image introduced me to him at the, after a very, very long day, it was during an uh, image comics event. And, you know, he's a pretty – this is the guy who does Walking Dead and does a bunch of stuff. And uh, and my friend Ron, who was working at Image at the time, said, hey, you want to meet Robert Kirkman? And I was like, sure, but like what – I have no, I, what could I possibly have to say to Robert Kirkman? And for the love of Christ, what whatever would Robert Kirkman have to say to me? Oh, this is my friend who used to have a, a website you never heard of. And But he went up and introduced me end of the night. And you know what? Again, I, I always feel like this is the part, my favorite part of the story. He was incredibly nice. He was incredibly gracious. You could tell he was tired from a long day. But like, you know, I had not given that much thought to Robert Kirkman. I, I really like The Walking Dead. I've read some of the comics. I love the show. But like, he would not even be in my top 500 list. But I walked away from that just feeling so good about that guy because he was obviously such a mensch, you know, and just like a regular dude. And that's one of my favorite parts of that is walking away from it going like, you're still amazing, but you are like a regular person. And that's kind of the best part. So you hit on the key part for the, the rest of the names on the list. Many of the people that, that you know, the, the threat, the possibility of meeting some of these people through you or someone else that I know is like a thing that, like, that I'm 
in many ways just trying to avoid ever having for exactly the reason that you said. What I say to myself is, what could this person possibly have to say to me? Nothing, because they don't know who I am. They don't care who I am. I'm nobody. I'm just another person who likes something they did. And what could I possibly say to them? The answer is nothing. They don't want to hear anything I have to say. And, like, they don't, like, it's just an annoyance, right? And so <laughs> I, I need to never meet any of these people in the context oh, of, of, I, of I am meeting somebody. That can never happen, right? Because... You know what it's like. I mean, you just had it happen. Hey, do you want to meet insert famous name of person someone asks you at a party? And my answer is like, you know, if it's someone right. I really care about, the answer is no. I never want to meet like under that circumstance because, because again, you were even just trying to think of like, I guess they would introduce me as somebody who used to have a website that a few people heard of. Like, you're looking for some way for them to introduce you as something other than you are famous and this person has heard of you. And they wanted to meet you, so here they are. You're not going to know who they are. They're nobody. Uh, but they wanted to meet you because of weird evolutionary reasons that don't make any sense to any of us and we never really think about. Um, something having to do with uh, knowing people who are prominent in the tribe and passing on our genes and the people who didn't know the people who were prominent in the tribe died <laughs> in the flood claim. or whatever. But, uh, like, no one wants to talk or think about that. But like in that context, you are trapped. Like It is better to be on an airplane seat next to Bill Murray because then at least like... Hey, you know, what can you say? Here we are. Like, I didn't plan it. You didn't plan it. We just ended up next to each other. At least then you have a, a, a reasonable leaping off point. But much better than the terrifying, uh, hey, famous person, here's a person that I know that you don't know, that you don't want to know, that you don't know anything about, you don't care about, that has nothing interesting to say to you. Uh, hi. <laughs> and then, like, <laughs> you are, imme- the power dynamic is immediately, uh like, I mean, because I know what it's like, like, you know, in the tiny microcosm of the world that I have, where like the seven people that listen to me on podcasts, all of whom go to WWDC, uh, come and see us. Like, if you are not like uh, that Kirkman guy, I'm keeping is that his last name? I don't know any comments. Yeah, people. Robert Kirkman. Yeah, I know Brian Michael Bendis. That's it. But anyway, Brian Michael Bendis. Uh, uh, they if you are good at dealing with people who are fans of you, if you become good at it, if it's a skill that you have, it, the person goes away feeling like you did. Like, wow, like that person knows how to take a compliment and made me feel good about meeting them. And now I have a a good opinion of them. That is a skill that I don't have. Um, I try to be gracious. I do appreciate fans or whatever. And the great thing about fans of tech podcasts is we actually do have something to talk about. Like we can talk about Apple nerd stuff. And and I I love it when that happens. It's like, oh, thank God. We've changed the dynamic from from you recognize me from a show to let us now both talk about things that Apple said today at WWDC. That is just so much more comfortable. And here's the the nice thing about this is that like, I don't want to bag on LA or Hollywood, but you know, if you go and meet people who are even at your peer level of fame in Hollywood, I don't know, I guess you can have a conversation about the industry. Everybody's at my peer level of fame in Hollywood. What are you talking about? Everybody. (laughs) Everybody except for the famous people. I'm struggling to explain this because what I'm trying to get at, though, that's neat about the podcasting world and the fact that, like, I I hope this doesn't sound self-involved, but I listen to a lot of podcasts and I have a pretty good idea that some of my friends listen to my podcast. I don't know exactly how much. There's no way to know. I don't actually care, but I know they're familiar with it. They know some of the bits. I know their bits. And, you know, and what's nice is... There's something about the podcasting world. I, I hate talking about podcasts on podcasts. I'm so sorry. Uh, uh, this is so lame. But what's great about it is you don't just have to talk about the medium. You can go directly. It's such a direct experience to be able to talk about, oh, that time John Roderick tor- told this story. Or that time you know Mike Hurley made this joke. Or we all love the Flophouse or whatever. It's one of the things I love most about this quote-unquote community is it, it can be so 
immediately and exclusively about the actual content and love of the content in a way that's kind of difficult in most other contexts. I, I don't know if I'm putting that well, but like, for example, if you meet somebody, uh, you know, if you, if you have, you're next to Bill Murray on a flight, like, what are you going to say? What's the deal? How come you can't make up with Harold Ramis? Like, that's super weird. Like, why would you say that? But like, if I ran into, I mean, I'm not saying anybody would want to have a conversation with me, but I don't know. I, I really like that about this particular thing. I wonder how many other forms of media, maybe newspaper, like publishing or, or publishing books, but do you know what I'm I talking think it about? Helped, like, I, like, I think it you... helps to have a shared interest. What you're getting at is like that that you can have uh, like something that you could talk about. I imagine it's similar with sports fans, right? So I'm I'm I'm, I'm sure there are uh, not the athletes themselves, but famous sports journalists, favorite announcers, stuff like that. And I imagine if you were a big sports fan and met a favorite sports journalist from your local newspaper or whatever, that you would immediately have something you could talk to them about. That there wouldn't be weird, awkward, like, oh, I'm meeting you on, you know, Dan Shaughnessy or whatever. Oh, you're, you're, you know, I read your column all the time. That takes like two seconds, then you're immediately into talking about the Red Sox. And you are suddenly on level f- uh, footing. And with podcasts, it's similar to that because you, at the very least, can immediately be talking about podcasts if you're, you know, if you're in that community, podcasts you both listen to. So if you meet somebody and you say, uh, you can talk about their podcast, obviously, or if you are a podcast, you can talk about your podcast, maybe they listen to, or just a podcast you both listen to. And then switching from the, I am now meeting a famous person, you are the famous person, and I am the not famous person, you can switch to talking about a shared interest. Absolutely. There's something, there's, there's probably something you, you, you know, you both like. And with actual celebrities, you know, like you're meeting Brad Pitt. First of all, you don't even know what Brad Pitt likes because, you know, you think you do, but you don't because he's an actor and you don't know what goes on in their life. And second of all, like you don't have any they're They're so famous. So many people know them that that like it blots out the sun. Like it's the only thing that is relevant about Brad Pitt is that he's Brad Pitt. And the odds of you having anything in common with him are slim. Like for all you know, maybe you're super into woodworking and so is he and you never knew that. And then you hit it off and you're fine. But chances are you don't know what they're interested in. They don't know what you're interested in. They meet people all the time. They're sick of it. They don't want any of your crap. Yeah, but there's also almost like two kinds of irreconcilable power differentials happening. On the one hand, you have you know Brad Pitt. Who, you know, yes, you know, I, he's somebody I'd like to meet. For me, I'm going to say George Clooney. I would love to meet George Clooney. Uh, he just seems like he would be like a really fun person to meet. I think I could find a way to not be insufferable for a few minutes about him, but with, with him, but like, you know, he's somebody, but, uh, there's a very strange thing that happens, which is like when one person knows way, way, way more about this person than they know about them, it's a very strange kind of power differential and it's, it's extremely awkward and, uh, it makes it very difficult to have an authentic conversation with somebody because there's an elephant in the room in some ways. You know what I mean? Like you, like you wouldn't ordinarily just go up and like want, want a stranger to sign your chest or something. You know, like that's, and you know, the other part of this is we are making this about celebrity when we're not really just talking about, uh, you know, those who have achieved the achievers, the heroes who may not even be famous people. Cause that's the other part of this getting to meet somebody who may be very obscure, but means a lot to you. Maybe like Rich in that case. I mean, you know, Rich is maybe not going to be on Good Morning America every month, but like it's such a big deal to to meet a true hero. Uh, You know, somebody who has done something you've loved for years, you know, even if they may not be the most famous person, you know, I think that's a distinction worth making. Yeah. And that is the other big instinct in this whole thing. Uh, Setting aside from the, the inexplicable desire we have to know or be associated with people that other people know. The, you know that just that incredible urge the other part of it that we that i think we both feel and i think is the reason you went to meet the walking dead guy is 
you have, you know, people who, who you admire, who made things that you just think are amazing, you have in you some urge to let that person know what they meant in your life. Totally. Like, like some, somehow to express it. You know you can't express it, right? Especially if it's like, if you're going to like meet the assembled Beatles, right? When they were all alive, right? And, you know, and you were a child of the 60s. <laughs> what are you, you going to say to John Lennon? Right, right. But like, I'm so glad I never had the opportunity to embarrass myself in front of John Lennon. But, but you have that desire. And I think that desire is not from the same kind of selfish place. It's just because you've had this, uh, you know, usually an emotional and important experience in your life because of something this person did, whether it's a song they wrote, a movie they made, a thing they invented, uh, whatever it may be, you know, like, and you feel the need to let this person know that, like, just to make, you, you want to make them feel good about themselves. You want to express to them thanks in a way that makes them feel good. And it's almost impossible to do that because, again, they've heard all this stuff a million times before, and a lot of people... I mean, myself included, cannot take compliments well, especially nerdy, famous people. You suck at it. You are so bad at it. I'm bad at it. Lots of people are bad at it. It's embarrassing to everyone, John. You should learn to take a compliment. Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm not the only one. Lots of people are bad at taking compliments in this sort of tech nerd circle or whatever. And yet, we still feel this need to express that. And the other people on my list, like, that I have down here, like, my my big white whale one for forever has been Jonathan Colton, right? Which, who I can never meet. Why, why, Why do you do this to me? Right. Well, so there's multiple reasons there, but Amy Mann is a better example, right? Because Amy Mann is the type of person who I thought I would never meet because she was separate from like, well, John Nicole, he's like a nerd guy. I've seen him play live. Like, he's just a regular person. I knew... I, she, has, you know, she has quite a presence. I, I watched him before he was... But Amy Mann was like, oh, well, that's like it's like meeting Madonna, right? You know, it's like, it's a famous person. Everybody knows who that is. It's like super famous, whatever. And Amy Mann has that weird distinction of being like, kind of like R.E.M., I would imagine, like, you feel like you knew about them before anyone else did. You feel like you appreciate their skills more than anybody else. And like right, Amy Mann, right. I just think like, you know, she writes these songs, she sings them, she plays instruments, she does everything. She's just like, you know, a magical... And, and, this, and on top of it, she's a, let's be honest, she's a gorgeous, exotic bird. I don't know she, if she's a bird. You don't think she's extraordinary looking? I don't know if she's a bird is what she's I'm getting. In, she's incredibly striking. Um, I'm, yes, I'm sure. That that There is that aspect of it too, but you really, that's not appropriate to be expressing in, <laughs> when you meet It's somebody. not appropriate to say that, that you find Amy Mann to be an, a very attractive woman? Not when I, you meet her. Uh, okay. All right. Right. Point but taken. really, but, but that's not why. There's plenty of attractive people. Like, you know, I, I put it this well, way. Well, what I'm trying to say is like, I've been around her. I wouldn't have the same feeling to express these things to Beyonce, even though Beyonce is great and I love her she music. Knows, and, and she and, knows she's pretty. Yeah. And she's beautiful and everything like that. But I feel like, like Amy Mann, like R.E.M., as as you said in your Unjustly Maligned episode that I still listen to, but I've, I've heard the capsule summary of like, you know, that, that you feel like they're your band, right? right so Amy right. Mann was like other people listening to their music, but I know that. that she was like, you're fine. Right, I know. Not even that much of a fine because you realize other people that like I. I understand that Amy Mann is a better songwriter than all these people that are much more famous. I understand that her songs are like they're so different to me than. And I realize she's just this one person. She's doing all. I don't know if she's like collaborating songwriters. Like I don't even you know. I don't. I'm not. I'm not an obsessive Amy Mann fan who knows everything about all of her music. Although I think I own almost all of it. But like, you, you end up putting them up on a pencil. Like, how can one person? write these songs, sing them, play instruments all by themselves. Like, it's just them, their name on the album, and they do all these things. And these songs speak to me in a way that none of this other music that everyone else thinks is amazing and famous does. Like, I, I imagine exactly as I imagine I would be to R.E.M. Like, why is it that that these songs and this person, how are they able to do that? And it, what meaning it has to you to, to hear these songs? Like, I can't believe it. Just song after song, album after album. Like, that they are, you know, and 
you know, so incredibly brilliant and able to write the way they write and sing the way they sing and, 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 you know, play the instruments the way they play them. And that it is so distinct from all other music that you're listening to. It is even close to the same genre. And yet it seems like that no one else realizes it because in the end, she's not as famous as Madonna or Beyonce. Everyone knows who those people are. Nobody, you know, like Amy Mann is this, you know, smaller act, like, I don't know what, B-list or C-list celebrity, and yet you realize that Amy Mann is the true genius and that she is, like, this magical being come down from nowhere that has just insane talent and, like, you know, all the way the connection back to, like, the Till Tuesday thing or whatever, like, I knew from the beginning. I could tell she was different, you know. Um, And so you have the desire to express that, but why? But why? Like, you just, you feel like, I mean, that, that's the only, that's the type of celebrity where, again, Nate Bayman has nothing to say to me. Doesn't, for as far as I'm aware, knows nothing about anything that we have nothing in common. You know, we have, as far as I'm aware, we have yeah, nothing Boston. in common. But, you know, but like, I don't think we even have that in common. Um, but you would, like, that you can arrange, you can say, look, if I ever met Amy Mann, if I was stuck next, sitting next to Amy Mann in a plane, I would feel like I would tell her, in as reasonable small number of sentences possible, that she is the most amazing <laughs> singer songwriter ever to live in the entire I'm not planet. A stalker, I'm not right. going to hurt no, you. No, no, no preface. Just say that and have her say thank you or however it is that she has determined that she takes compliments, and then never say anything to her ever again. And you'd be fine with that, right? That mm-hmm. I feel more comfortable with than Jonathan Colton, which is like, yeah. but he's probably a nerd like me, and we might have stuff in common. But on the other hand. There were a million nerds who want a piece of Jonathan Colton. Like, I don't understand how he survives those damn cruises. You can tell me, because you've been on a couple of them with him. Like, this like, is eating you up inside. This is horrible. That seems like a nightmare, because I can tell. Like, I can tell that he is... I don't know. I'm not going to say this definitively. He seems to me to be the type of person who, like me, is not entirely comfortable with this whole, uh, you know, any amount of fame from a bunch of nerds. Oh, he's like an uncomfortableness sink. Uh, he's a very, very nice guy and a, a, an extremely, f- like, effortlessly funny and charismatic guy. But he, he uh, part of his charm, and that's kind of like a, a bit, is like he just always seems a little bit like something's on his mind. He's always just a little bit, like, jittery. <laughs> not right, nervous, like, not nervous, but, but like, like, there's always some kind of, like, mm, kind of thing with him. And it's like, that's just how he is. Right, but that's He's a lot like, like you, to be honest. But that, but that is how that, that's how I would imagine my reaction. Like that, I wouldn't be very good at. But he but he's got it multiplied by a million times. So you know, you know for a fact that his whole life is stupid nerds coming up to him saying stupid nerd things. Exactly the nerd things you're thinking you're going to say right now. Nope, he's heard them a million times for a million other. It's like ex- nerds exactly like you. Like it's the problem of being so narrow. And it's like so like you can never say anything to Jonathan Colton. Like you might as well just pretend he doesn't exist because there's nothing you can say to him that other nerds haven't said. You think you're a unique, beautiful snowflake, but you were like every one of those other super nerds that's out there. And so you can't even bother to get into the point where you're going to try to express to him that what his music means to you or how talented you think he is, because he's heard that before. And he's also bad at taking a compliment, I imagine. And so it's just going to leave everybody unsatisfied and uncomfortable. And so the only way I could ever meet Jonathan Colton is if, like, we were the only people left on Earth after a zombie apocalypse and we have much more important, <laughs> we have much more important things to talk about. Like, we don't care who each other are. It's all just about, like, how do we stay alive? How will we please throg? <laughs> yeah, not, yeah. It's just, it's just like, we just both need to stay alive. And by the way, yeah, I both recognize that you're that famous person, but all that doesn't matter now because the yeah. world is gone and we just need to learn to survive. And that's it. That's the only way. And so, like, I've written off ever meeting famous people who I might have something in common with. Oh, my God. This is awful, John. This is terrible to hear. I don't, you, you seem to have a much easier time with it. I think mostly because you are less of a fan of these people than I am. And so you are, you're uh, able no, to... I just, I under, I mean, I do understand 
some of the mechanics and economics of this, which is that anybody who's like, shoot, man, if you run into your city council person at the mall, they're not going to be freaked out that you say hi to them. If I see Katie Tang walking down the street, she's not going to flip out. I'm going to say, hi, Katie Tang. You serve my district. You know my wife from school. Hi, how's it going? And then you move on, right? But they're used to that. If you, if you said hi, if you said, oh, oh, you're Bill Murray. Oh, I really enjoy your work. Uh, I won't bother you. Have a great flight, but thank you for what you do. You know, there's nobody who doesn't want that because A, it's really super nice, and B, you've made it clear that you're done being a weirdo. There's nothing wrong with that. The hard part is where you leave it mushy. And like you're mushy about the intro, you're mushy like, and you're trying so hard not to be a weirdo that you become such a weirdo. You've got to go in with decisiveness, and just say. And the thing is, it's like it's like walking up to a cat. The cat will let you know if it wants to be petted. If Bill Murray wants to talk with you more, I'm pretty sure he won't. Well, what you just described is Miami man approach. It would be straightforward. Like you just have to somehow express how much you love them, and then never talk to them again, and everybody's fine. Like that's because that's all you want to get out. You don't want anything from them. You just want to give to them. You want you want to give to them. You want to yes. somehow ex- transfer to them that you have made a difference in my life, and I think you're amazing. And maybe like maybe that day they're not feeling that amazing about themselves. Maybe they they woke up and they're depressed about something, or maybe they have something on their mind, or maybe they have family problems or whatever. And if you could give them a tiny little millisecond of like, oh, you know, someone liked something I did once, that could make them feel better. And you feel like that is a tiny a tiny penny back from the millions of dollars of import and enjoyment they gave you. And well, that is a, yeah. a, a reasonable exchange. But like I said, the problem comes with the people who are like, well... So she's a famous person, but I know Merlin, and he's not a famous person, he's just Merlin, right. and Merlin knows Jonathan Colton. How do I square that circle? What does that mean? Like, what do you mean he knows Jonathan Colton? Like, is it just a guy? Yeah, he does. Like, they just, just like a person, and they just like, went to the House of Prime Rib with, with, with John Hodgman. <laughs> right. Like, John, this doesn't make any sense. Like, out of the House of Prime with with, with Marco Armand is not quite the same thing. Like, what does he do? Should I should I know that name or something? I don't know. Um, there, Marco's a celebrity in his way. Or, right. You know, but what I'm it. saying is, like, to you, John Hodgman is like Marco is to me. He's just some other guy, right? right? But to everyone else in the world, he's the guy from the Mac PC commercials. And so, when you have that connection, which I imagine you must have with people too, where where one or two degrees separated from you is someone who is actually famous, but to the one to two degree separated thing is just a person. And so how do you, where does that transition lie? Like, how is it suddenly you jump from person I know, person I know, giant global celebrity? That's, that's like, that's like me and Adam Savage. Like Adam Savage is a guy I know from through friends who's in San Francisco and you see him at stuff. And I've been to parties at his house a number of times, but like I, my daughter likes Mythbusters. I like Mythbusters okay, but I mainly just really like Adam based on having met him at parties. So that's weird. I know that sounds like a brag. I don't mean it that way. <laughs> this whole show is all your humble brags to the people you met. That's fine. Oh, you, uh, I disagree. I, I know you disagree, but like you don't you don't realize I, you're not doing it to be a humble brag, but to other people listening, uh, it's boggling their mind the number of people that you know that they would consider famous. I don't know how to respond to that because I'm not if – if I were truly embarrassed because I thought this was some callow attempt to seem like I know lots no, of celebrities. No, it isn't. You just know them. That's what I'm getting I would, at. I would, but I would it's pull not. out they're actual just, celebrities. To, to you, they're just regular people, right? We have well, even touched on the they're people. Just, they're just people who do a job and you meet them and you get along for a second or you don't. Right. And if you don't act like a total creep, you can be friends with mm. almost anybody. I know. I know. Well, that you can. You know. You can. <laughs> That's right. You can. Well, so here's the – You know, he built, all, he built all his own lightsabers. We got to go, I got to go play with him. I I've seen the shows. I'm, I'm a fan. 
Um, the, the, the other, the, the fun one with you though, the, the, the favorite one with you, which shows the other possible dysfunction. Basically, I, this is a lesson on how, uh, there is no relationship that my screwed up in this can't cause to be problematic. Um, but the fun one with you is John Roderick, who I had honestly never heard of until you started to have podcasting with him. I didn't know the long winters was a band. I didn't know who he was. I knew nothing about him. So my introduction to him was not as a celebrity, not as someone whose music I Good. have ever heard of or whatever. It Good. was as some other guy on a podcast with you. And if that's how you're introduced <laughs> to John Roderick, your view of him is very different, I imagine, than if you had been a longtime fan of his music. And, you got the pillows and the owls and the raccoons. Right. That is my introduction to him. And then it slowly dawns on you that right. other people think of him as a famous musician. And so that's good in that I don't have any celebrity baggage with John Roderick. And it's bad in that that allows me to be my obnoxious, disrespectful self to John oh, Roderick. he needs it, though, John. He needs it so much. <laughs> he does not need it. Oh, um, he needs it. Anyway, so that is that is like these it are is, the young days of the internet. It's like the Wright brothers. You got planes made out of paper with bicycle engines. Um, and so, but you're not. Are you cowed? You're not cowed by him. Oh no, I'm. I'm not. Uh, but well, that's what you're, I'm saying. You're like his, that's, you're his inquisitor. That's, that's the magic. That's the magic of of not realizing somebody is famous. God, you'll when, do anything to mention you that first, you know celebrities. It's so sad. When, when you first meet them, right? You know what I mean. And so, it's it would have been better if I had met, uh, you know, Paul and Storm and Jonathan Colton as just regular. Like if, if I had also gone to Yale, um, and then you know, <laughs> then meet them as just regular people. Um, and then you could find out if they're the type of people you would have any, like, would you be friends with them if you just met those regular people? Would you have interesting things to talk about them? Yes, no, maybe, whatever. But there's no baggage. But once they become famous, and once, like, for in the example of Jonathan Colton, or Paul and Storm as well, like, if they do something that you think is, like, just amazing. Like, I remember Jonathan Colton, like, it was another person, like, a magic trick. It's like, I couldn't believe that he was, it was, you know, it's an example of, like, white male nerd representation because you know we're really underrepresented in media but uh, you know like uh, his his little uh, area of you know the the place where he became famous the type of songs that he wrote speaking to the audience that he spoke to was an audience that for the most part rock stars were not talking to the experience you know what i mean right and so it it was like it was it was just willful See, see, Roderick doesn't like when I make comparisons to people like Al, Weird Al, but like with Colton, like he was so, I don't want to say calculatedly, but uh, like so clearly for an incredibly specific kind of nerdy audience. Yeah, or, or some people like him for the most part. I mean, you'd imagine to be people like him because you could imagine if like this- somebody who thinks a song about Mandelbrot is a good idea. Right. And, and like, because here's what you think you think like if he wasn't like this, he must be the world's biggest genius to be able to figure out what people like this want and then oh, do it. Oh, it's like becoming the world's greatest Christian rocker. Like, well, you're a total, you know, uh, hedonist, right? Or like, something just, like, right. just to like just right. to like win in that genre. So, or so that you, I assume, I assume, and you can tell me that like, obviously he is he is like a, a nerd and he does like nerdy things, and that's why he wrote songs about nerdy things. He wasn't like you know trying to capture a market in some calculated gamble. He was being himself, right? right? And this yeah, is yes. what he he had to express, right? And the second aspect of that is that I think he's a really, really good writer and has uh, some good sensibilities for writing tunes. Like I'm, I'm a you know this is the type of thing. Like the type of people I'm impressed by are people who whose like creative or intellectual genius impresses me. Like it's the same people who just get you know who is that one you were talking about? Like Oscar Wilde, that, that book you had read when you were a kid, where you're just blown away by like how smart and funny and just like 
in your best moments, you think you come up with one line like this, and then here's like dumped on top of you seventeen books or oh seven yeah, it's, albums like, it's like picking this of. up and realize realizing that you're like the the shadow of a puppet on the uh, cave wall, like that this is this, this is the source of the light, right? You know and, yeah, and and you know it's just a great great artistic achievements like Amy Man, like like anything Jonathan Colton song. And you're like, holy cow, this person is talented. This person is smart, and this and I don't know what kind of person type person this person is, but this thing that they've made will you know it stands on its own. Like they are so smart, so clever, so talented, so amazing, and you just become in awe of them. And then I think I feel like it's it must be very difficult to ever you know say it was appropriate say you don't you don't know it but you would totally get along with brad pitt if you met him in real life because you guys have so much in common that again if you would if neither one of you is famous you would be best friends but he's brad pitt and you're this regular person can you ever get from that that uh that gulf to being best friends with brad pitt probably not well, no, uh, it's going to be hard to work out the schedules. And because you've been so <laughs> awful to me about my humble bragging that wasn't humble bragging, I'm going to leave out several very specific examples that would be very illuminating here. But I can tell you that, like, once you, like, it's people are just people. And if you don't act like a creep and you have stuff in common, you can totally get along with it. Yeah. And also, here, that, I think that's the, the final part of this. The final part of this is the, the fear and realization that you probably don't have anything in common and that gets back to the more selfish angle which is like like in the end it probably turns out that you wouldn't be friends with jonathan colton because you're all gonna laugh at you (laughs) because you're too different you just like nothing bad about it like but if you just met each other on the street as random people who didn't know you would not become friends because the same reason you don't become friends with lots of other people like it's just you're just not compatible and for some reason for people you really look up to that becomes disappointing the eventual realization that like through no fault of either of ours, we're we just wouldn't get along. Not that we would dislike each other, but we were just like, oh, hi, you know, like it, take away all the fame stuff, take away all the power dynamic, take away everything. It's just two people, and you just realize, nope, we we wouldn't end up hanging out or being friends because we're just not, you know, whatever. And then put back the fame and then say, now why am I all of a sudden disappointed that that's not the case? Why why is my self worth gone down because I realized that we just wouldn't be friends and that's true of like pretty that's much every celebrity because it's so true of pretty depressing. much everybody on the planet right and that's yeah that's <sighs> the other thing is like you know that's that's for the people who you really care about and like random celebrities are like oh you know like again just someone who just got an oscar the other night or whatever i would have no problem meeting those people i don't care about those people i don't like i may admire sure. their work a little bit or whatever but it's not you know it's they're they're super famous like you know taylor swift beyonce yeah it's good stuff i like the stuff or whatever but like there are certain people he reserved for, like, no, but, like, this person was meaningful to me. These people did something that I think is, like, deeply special to me or, like, stands above everything else. And, like, it's the way I distinguish between, like, meeting Madonna, who's, like, she's super famous. I liked her songs. You know, it's great and everything. Versus, for me, meeting Lady Gaga, who I feel like has been much more important sure, in my life. Sure, sure, sure. Well, then let me pivot a little bit. I, we've got to get out of this incredibly depressing way this is going. So let, let's leave out the if you if you like, let's leave out the celebrity part of this because it's it's insufferable. Uh, somebody who's a hero or a hero-ish person to you today, uh, and if you don't like this question, I got another. Um, who would you like to meet that you actually would have something to say? Where you would have something to say to them, and, and wonder if maybe they might have something to say back to you. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't have to be. And forget about the celebrity part. Is there somebody you would just love to meet today, because like you just want to pick their brain, or you want to ask them, you want to do more than just like, uh, you know, get on one knee and thank them for their career? 
Is there anybody like that? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think it's still computer people. Like, I would love to meet Craig Frederighi and, and hang out and talk with him. Like, a lot, a lot of the the people in charge at Apple or people who he, are... He's a pretty smart guy, right? I'm, I have no idea. I never met him, but I imagine, I'm not, I'm not imagine being, he, I'm not he being glib, but he's, he is a technology... He, like, he gets the yeah, whole Yeah, yeah, no, thing, right? these are... He's a, te- he's a technical person. These are technical people who have risen to, to levels uh, of importance. And I, I have met and, t- and spoken to some of these famous Apple people, but I, I just feel so much more comfortable with that because I would be excited to meet them and I would feel like I would have something to talk to them about because we both, we both know a lot about Apple and technology stuff, and that's a topic that I feel like we would both be comfortable talking about. And it, I think it would be a substantive at least from my perspective maybe they just feel like they were being interviewed but at least that's still like a reasonable exchange of information they have all the info and i have all the questions um but i also have opinions and you know like i i i feel comfortable in that type of thing and yes there are a lot of people like that it's not it's not out of the question not to make it back about the fame but it's not out of the question that he's can i just say at least very familiar with you I mean, he's, it has certainly crossed his transom at some point that there's a person who writes this incredibly detailed thing about... Oh, oh yeah. No, they, the fact that they might know who I am, it doesn't matter. Like, I, I would have no problem, for example, meeting Steve Jobs when he was but alive. But I don't mean who, the fame part. I mean the bona fide part. I mean the part, not the part about, I, oh, John's well-known for this number of downloads so much as, oh, this is somebody who gets this. Oh, yeah. No, but I see, here's the thing. Like, I, I, again, with meeting Steve Jobs, it's not as if I need to have, like, a resume up or whatever, because I feel like I can establish my knowledge within three sentences with these people, because I know what I'm talking about, and they know what they're talking about. And you know how you can, like, it's like it is... Oh, yeah, you, any- can, you can speak in a very abbreviated patois. Two people who really know about something can very very quickly cut to the point. right like if you're if you're at like a big uh you know outdoor yard sale flea market looking at some model trains and someone else is looking at the model trains it takes like three grunts and words for the two people who know oh we are both model train guys and we know what the hell we're talking about when we're both right. looking at this train yes. type of you know what i mean and like, so that's i you know again i i would feel comfortable doing that and those are the type of people like are is there someone who you who you look up to who you admire who you would really love to talk to i used to have many long uh hypothetical thought experiments of like what it would be like to meet steve jobs because i just felt like i would argue with him the whole time <laughs> i would just yell it would just be yelling just into a room full of yelling uh, you know I, do, you, I, do you remember what what the nature of that would be oh just everything i felt i feel like if you know here's what i always thought with steve jobs the only way it would happen is we were literally trapped in an elevator because he'd want to get the hell out of there as fast as possible because sure. we would just end up in a screaming match immediately if if the tales are to be believed of the supposed you know legend of steve jobs and i think the like. tales are to be i've heard a couple firsthand things that have you ever talked to people who were at the um uh what's the my mac thing dot mac what was it called um the, the, yeah the, the b- dot mac thing yeah. what was it called uh, iTools, I and it was called, um, uh, what do you call it, Dot .Mac after iTools. I mean, have you ever heard? Have you ever and then it was MobileMe after that. But did you ever talk to people who were at that meeting? No, I've heard the tales of that meeting of the oh whole, you God. know, his typical Steve Jobs setup. Like, no, what, what is MobileMe supposed to do? But yeah. love them. Why <laughs> the F doesn't it do that? And the like, same thing with, like, OpenDoc. You know, he had the same disdain and, like... And I've heard tales that he thrives in that environment. I have tales that, like you, you know, that you will you will end up at the losing end of that. I mean, especially like if he wasn't my boss or whatever. The bottom line is that someone who runs a big company doesn't want a bunch of random people haranguing them. So I would have to be trapped in an elevator with him because we would have like we have we would have a lot to talk about. Like there are literally a lot of topics that Steve and I could talk about and disagree about, and I felt like I could give as good as I can get. And because he wouldn't be in an actual power position over me because I don't work for him. Uh, we would both feel free to talk freely, although he has no reason to talk to me at all, so he would just walk out of the room. That's why we have to be trapped in an elevator. <laughs> it still sounds creepy. Oh, isn't this a, an interesting coincidence? 
Hello, right. Steve. <laughs> I would have things to try to convince him of. I'd try to convince you would, him. Uh, you would persuade him. Try to persuade him. Yes. And I would find that exciting and engaging for me, and they would just want to get the hell out of it. Can I, can I ask you a question to ask, ask Steve Jobs if you ever run into him? Or, or can I ask you for your reckon on this? The thing I've always wondered about Steve Jobs, the thing I'm still really confused about, do you think he deployed anger and or rage tactically? Do you think he, I mean, what, absolutely, that, absolutely. Well, okay, so, so my question is, like, like, can, you turn it on, can you turn it on and turn it off, right? Those are two <laughs> like, separate so, questions. Like, I think, I think he could turn it on, but I think many, many times it turned on. Like, again, I didn't know the person. I'm just speculating, but I've, I've read a lot about him. And my impression is he could do it tactically, but he was also at the mercy of it, whether he wanted it to come or not. I, yeah, because I feel like that's a pretty big difference. I mean, like the, the the so much turns and like I still I've tried three times and I still haven't made it more than eleven minutes into the Fassbender movie because it was it was killing me. No, I, I, don't, can't, I, I can't could, watch that. Oh, I I could give a flying fig about any of that stuff. All you know, as you know, I love your Walter Isaacson coverage, but just the the exposition light blinking so hard, so many lanterns hanging on every available hook, it was excruciating. But. Like, I guess my question with Steve is like, uh, I hate when people do that. My question about Steve Jobs is, I do believe that he was a very, um, a very emotional person. I, it seems to me that he could get very angry. So I'm wondering, did he know what he was doing when, when he deployed it? Was it tactical? And could he decide when to turn it on and off? Or was it, ju- was he just a bully? Is my is my question? Yeah, I, I think it's it's got to be both. It's not like I've I've read so much about him. He's that a tactical. Some, he's a tactical bully. No, it's some sometimes he was he would be doing it for effect and have it planned in advance. Sometimes he would be doing it just because he knew it would be a good zinger and it would be feel good to get a zinger. And sometimes he would wish he could be calm, but would not be able to keep a cap on things and just be super pissed. Like it all, right. I think all in, in if you're on the receiving end, they all look similar. But I feel like you can tell when. When you are the victim of a well-planned, like, uh, zinger trap or a planned outburst versus when, it, when you know, he just, you know, lost control of it. And, and I think that's true of everybody. All of us, like, I mean, maybe not as, as bombastically. Sometimes you are in control of your facilities and are doing something for with an intended effect. Like, if you go in to say, you know, to your subordinates to work, I need to be firm and stern about this issue and express how important it is. And you make that plan and you go into the meeting and you do it. You're being tactical, but you're tactically deploying anger. And in another meeting, you could be in the same meeting and just not have that plan going in at all. But then, uh, it, you know, problems build up to the point where you find you're yelling at a bunch of people in the meeting and you never plan to do that. Um, and it looks the same on the receiving end. I'm thinking of like, um, what's his name? Arlie Ermey, Sergeant uh, Hartman in Full Metal Jacket, where th- part of his bit is being that character. Like he's doing that to keep you from dying in Vietnam. Or to at least if you do die in Vietnam, do it as a Marine in this way that's going to be useful. You know what I mean? So like part of the act that that guy had to put on was exactly that because he's, you know, that, that's what his job was. But that's the question that always endures. I don't think about it a lot. I don't really, I don't care as much as most people. But when all these Steve Jobs things go around and like, oh, is he Jesus? Is he the devil kind of stuff, which is just so, so excruciating to me. There is that part of me that wonders like how much control he had at various times in his life. Like, for example, I have no trouble at all believing he that in 70s 80s that maybe even to the 90s that he was what we would typically call a hothead do you know what i mean but i wonder if as he got older he was able to 
channel it. Yeah, I think he was aware of. I think you know, you know, you get older, you slow down, right? But you could tell, like, when he was young, young and rich, and kind of a jerk, and uh, mercurial is the word the word they was used in magazines in the eighties about him, which was uh, very fitting. Um, Yeah, like you know, the the whole the whole picture of him giving the finger to IBM and uh, embarrassing people in job interviews is just being a jerky twenty year old. But imagine a jerky twenty year old with lots of money and lots of power. and, well, and, and as recently as the story about Carly Fiorina, uh, the the Walter Isaacson tells about, you know what I mean, about basically getting everything they want out of that iPod deal yep, and like yep. just basically trying to humiliate her. Yeah, I mean, th- there's there's definite mean streak in him, but uh, you could see as he got older, uh, you know, we all slow down, we all change our values of what we think is really important, and he grew as a person and changed, but it was still he still had that ability to do that. He still had the savvy. He became, you know, like. I think the arc of his life is, is clear from the outside anyway. And that's, that's I think, why, like, the Fassbender movie, I can imagine being being his widow and thinking, like, this is this is how, you know, forget about the facts of the story, which is, like, fine. You're, you're completely fictionalizing the events, which is silly or whatever. But, but, really, but this Steve, is a- we have all of these copies of the magazine oh, here. God. It's so bad. Have you ever tried to watch? Uh, well, the Kate Winslet is supposed to be what Susanna Hoff. She's supposed to be and and no, not Susanna. I, not uh, what's her name? I mean, her her accent. Did I just name someone like, from the Bangles? <laughs> you just sent me yeah, the singer from the Bangles that John likes, but like her accent is changing like a weather vane. She does a good job, but no, it's the it's the it's the um, the dialogue. It's the what's the guy's name? The guy from uh, Social Network and that TV show I didn't like. Um, what's his name? Who wrote it? Uh, that guy. I know uh, the West Wing. Uh, what's happening, Joanna Hoffman? There you go. That's what's bothering me. Um, uh, Sports Night. A uh, few good. So men. anyway, Sports Night. Sports Night wrote this, and it is it, it's just <laughs> the exposition is excruciating, and it's it's one of those things where it's I don't know. The problem is like I love Tim and Eric so much, but once you've watched a lot of a certain kind of satire, it becomes hard to unsee. And so, like, it feels like a Tim and Eric sketch where you're, or a Mr. Show sketch where you're trying to do a parody of, of bad over-exposition, you know, or the uh, – what's, what's the phenomenon called? As You Know, Bob? Is that what it's called? Yeah, I think so. The TV trope? Yep. Well, As You Know, Bob, uh, we were supposed to have a cover article that was about the Macintosh, but now it's about a computer. And there's not even a person in front of it, and it's a PC! <sighs> Yeah. Oh my gosh, you're so mercurial, and you know, oh my gosh, and you're not. He's definitely not afraid to humiliate people to get what he wants, and oh, he sure is particular and specific about. Yeah, and so well, this this you should watch it. It's 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 incredible. So the uh, Joanna Hoffman was the one they tried to pretend was like biased. Like Kate Winslet, didn't she win the Oscar for that? I forget her. She was nominated. I mean, she was as good as she could be in it. But like, but the I mean, that's a real person. With her, that right. actual name, was she a PR person who was, was who was not with him for that span of time with that type uh. of influence. Like she wasn't even a composite character. Anyway, forgetting about the facts, All the right. idea that they're trying to sum up what was Steve Jobs like, and this is their summation. I understand why his his you know his widow was like that's not that's not Steve. Like, and all the people who knew him are like. That you know, but, but F- that, Fassbender was great, but like, but that's not. Them, it, it's he's got a, the name of a real person, and you exactly. could say this is this is the sum of this person's life. I mean, if you had him, because he did change and did grow, and the people who knew, especially he got married later in life, and and maybe she knew what he was like back then. Like, even the people who he yelled and screamed at when he was in his twenties, <laughs> like realized that he changed. What is that thing you have there? That is a Walkman. Someday I will provide a way for you to have all of those songs in your pocket. <sighs> Marvin Barry. Yeah, the new sound you've been looking for. Anybody? Uh, anybody living? 
living. Well, it's not like I said, all the, the Apple executives. So I feel like I could. Uh, right. something to talk. Right. I, I feel like I could talk to Bono about some stuff. Bono and the <laughs> Edge. Like if I just hang out with them. I feel like at this point, I you know they're old people. I bet Bono's nicer than he seems. I bet he's way nicer than he seems. I, I feel like I would have something to talk about with with all of them. Maybe less so with Larry, and then I would have nothing to talk about with Adam, which is sad. But he's yeah. just a bass player. Does he smoke? They probably they all smoke. Come on, they're, he seems they're, like a they're European. Yeah, they're I, are you, speaking of smoking, what was that? That was your thing on. Uh, what was that on? Uh, oh, God, what the hell podcast it was? You, oh, uh, Aaron Sorkin. No, yeah. Um, you were talking about. Oh, it must have been Roderick on the line. Um, how uh, when your wife goes to yoga to exercise, part of it is like also implicitly she's going someplace where you and, oh no and, that's not that i can see why you would say that and then no, no, you said well sometimes you're going out and that's the time you get to smoke i thought you right. had you were not smoking anymore no that's 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 not actually me but i mean that is the kind of that's, thing that somebody that, would is that what do. you have to say on this podcast that's not actually uh, you? i'm not sure which 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 one of my star f-ing persona should i be uh fulfilling that's, right now no, no. I, I think i think it's true because i've met you in person you don't smell like smoke it's not no. smokers oh, think thank you, you can't thank smoker you. thinks that they, you can't tell that they smoke but you can tell that they smoke because they smell like smoke that's how you can tell <laughs> I just smell like a brewery but um no but uh did, did you find that to be true do what? you ever do that you ever happy to have an errand um no, I know this is a little bit of a Louis C.K. bit, but I mean, I think it is true. Like, because you know, I'm a Hobbit, I, the, I have the opposite. It's like when my when my family went away to visit my in laws, and <laughs> so I, for you, it's more like you fly, you buy. <laughs> yeah, they they go and I stay. Uh, but no, I don't. I don't have this urge to get away from. Uh, I, like, uh-huh. especially since I'm, I'm kind of like a night owl. So like when they all go to sleep, that's my time, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But anyway, how did I get onto that topic? Oh, you were saying you wanted me to uh, introduce you to Amy Mann. It was about smoking. Uh, how would I get onto smoking? Because uh, I was wondering if Adam uh, from uh, U2 smokes. He oh, yes. No, yes. They all smoke because they're European, I'm assuming. Yeah. And that, that, I, would, I would get over that for the, the time hanging out. But yeah, that, that, that's mostly it. Like mostly when, uh, for, when Steve Jobs was alive, I thought a lot about what I would say to him, especially during like his, his second return to the company. And uh, when Jonathan Colton came onto the scene, I thought a lot about what an amazing person he is and how it's it's amazing that this thing exists. And when I, you know when I discovered Amy Mann, she took a different role than REM YouTubers producing Radiohead and all those people who were like, well, they're famous people and they're over there. But Amy Mann felt more like more personal and more and mm-hmm. more more just fantastical because it's like, how does how does this even exist? And why didn't other people? Why is she not the most famous female? I thought that the after the Dodo album, uh, around the time of Magnolia, Bachelor Number One. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I thought this might because I, you know, I'd enjoyed her, but I don't know how much of her stuff I'd heard. I mean, I knew about Michael Penn and her. I feel like Bachelor Number One though really hit me. It was around my the MP3 era for me. It was when I first got. I had a Diamond Rio and was just living on my MP3 player. I remember buying that, ripping it, and putting it on there. And I just remember thinking, why is she not? ridiculously famous like this this there, there's this is there's something so special about this music you know at the time i i just i don't know i guess at, a lot, at the time you know, there was a lot of boy bands but like even in indie scenes in the indie scene like i was like she does she's really like fishing or foul it's hard to figure out where she belongs but like more people should be aware of this beautiful thing that she's making and she had the decency not to become like internationally famous like rem right <laughs> like, or even like internationally famous like lady gaga like she yeah I mean, yeah you know what I mean? Like she, she remained in this kind of strange spot. It was really weird. And, and then you feel like, like fiercely, like not protective, but like, 
Like, d- doesn't the world understand the, the unrecognized genius of Amy Man? Like, why do they well, not? It's, it's like 30 years ago, approximately this year, that I first became aware, aware of her because my, my, uh, my girlfriend loved her previous band. I don't even know if we're allowed to talk about it. But, like, she thought Voices Carry was, like, the greatest song she'd ever heard it, in her life. It's, it's an amazing song. Like, it's a really good song. And and she's and she's the reason. As I always say with Radiohead, like when I well, heard people cr- remember her for being the girl with the tail in the video. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know what I mean? She had like a like a hook. You know what I mean? Which is oh, she had the cool tail. Well, <laughs> but like uh, like her hook was see, that's I don't creep and and voice carrier are my two examples. So it's weird being able to just use one to explain the other. But like when I heard creep. It was like playing on MTV forever. Obviously, it was being promoted for whatever reason or whatever. But there was there was something about that song that made me think, like, there's something different here than there is in every other song. And I bought the album, right? And I listened to it, and a lot of the songs were not that good. Are you talking about Radiohead? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm pa- sorry. I th- I'm looking for an Amy Mann song called no, Creep. Pa- okay. Pablo Honey. Pablo Honey. You know, you know, Creep. The, the they played it no, on it's, TV. No, I'm, I'm a fan. I'm forever, a fan right? Yeah. Um. So I bought that album, and then I'm like, yes. It's not like none of the songs. Does, does are that like, one have anyone can play guitar? That's not on yes, that one. Yes, it does. Yes. Oh, that's that's a pretty good record. I mean, it's not a terrible record, but none of the songs are elevated to the level the creep was. But I was like, but there's something about something about creep makes me think that this band is capable of more than they're showing right now. And boy, were they ever more capable! Yeah. And so that was like the signifier. And voices carry is like, uh, I discovered Amy Mann, and then I'm like, wow, who is this person? It and then really, you do a little really bit of googling, and you're like, like wait. Yeah. She's the person from that song. And it's like, it's like when I look at my iTunes album, like how many songs from the eighties are still in my iTunes album? Like how many, how many survived? Like, like I have to say, like, I know you're a big Flock Seagulls fan first Bang So Alive, but <laughs> like break. they, those ones didn't, didn't make it in. Like spin me right round is not in my <laughs> library, <laughs> right? <laughs> but, uh, but Rosanna <laughs> is in there. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. And, and Toto and voice to and, yeah, and voices carry is in there, right? Uh, and Africa, it made it through. Uh, Aha's take on me is it made it through wow. the end. Uh, Duran Duran, Rio, it, it made it through, right? Um, sure as Kilimanjaro rises like Olympus above the Serengeti. Yeah, no, the lyrics that song it's the not worst that lyrics sense. in the entire world. They do not make much sense. Don't try not to try not to think about it. Um, but so, <laughs> but Amy Mann is like it was separated by like seemingly like decades of like all right. So there's this song that you enjoyed from the 80s that you realize, you know what, that's a good enough tune that's going to make it all the way through to my iTunes library. And then this person comes out of seemingly nowhere and yeah. sings this music, doesn't sound anything like that, and then you realize, oh my god, that's the same person. And then you realize, all right, this person, it's, this is not a fluke. Voices Carry was not a fluke. That was her creep of like, this person is capable oh, yeah. of, of greater things, and we just didn't realize at the time because she was in an 80s band and they had to do these videos with bad haircuts and so on. And, and, and so a similar that. thing happened with Not A Surf, where Not A Surf... Or like to a lesser extent, maybe Harvey Danger, but like not a surf had this hit that would now forever relegate them to one hit wonder status. Unless you were aware that as recently as like a year or two after that, they started this career of making this incredibly wonderful music that was not, you know, generic alternative rock. I like popular a lot. Like, I think it's a really good song, but it's nowhere near as good as even their second album. But like now, what? They're my age. They're like in their 50s and they're still out there. They played on Seth Meyers like last night or the night before. But like still everybody's going to go, oh, they did that song popular. That's what people are always going to remember. Harvey Danger, like, you know, everybody knows Flagpole Sitta, but man, they've had some good albums. Not everybody they've had knows three, that. They've had, what? I don't know. I don't even know what Harvey Danger is. The John Roddick had to learn bass on an airplane flight to play. I'm not sick, but I'm not well. Nope. Really? I got nothing. 
I, Are you kidding me? Other, otherwise, I probably would have heard of John Roderick before I heard him on your podcast. I mean, I know Har- I had heard of the name, the band name Harvey Danger. You are screwing with me. But There's I no could, way you don't know. It was 1998. It was everywhere. Uh, maybe not everywhere for me. I mean, maybe you just... 98, 96, something Maybe like that, it, it? you just didn't sing it in a way that I recognized. They're not a surf songs I, I, I uh, recognize. You're making this really tough on me this week. Well, I'm just saying, like, different different circles there. Do you? Uh, are you familiar with Not A Surf? Oh, the popular song. <laughs> oh, my gosh, really? So you don't know, like, um, Let Go? Nah, I don't know. You, you'll have to sing it and play it for me, and I'll tell you. Yeah, I'll do it wrong, and then you can yell at me again. Uh, it's just excruciating. Um, you should check out their, their 2002 album, Let Go, um, which is I think you might like. Seems unlikely. You know, oh, did I tell you the thing where uh, I heard the mashup that Roderick's on? I told you about that. Did, no. there, did I tell you about this? That there's somebody put out uh, Kanye Death Cab mashup. Have you ever heard that? I have not. I don't know any Kanye West songs, so it's going to be a difficult mashup. For you me don't know into. any Kanye West songs? I do not. Check out the money. You don't know any Kanye? Unless they were included in a mashup that I listened to, I don't think I've ever heard anything. What about Jay Z? You got any Jay Z records? Uh, no, no. The only the only hip hop I know is from being in mashups with other songs that I do know. Did you ever ever get Hamilton? You listen to that? Uh, I have listened to some of that. I'm not really into that type of thing, but I I, I think I would like to see it if if I could see it just to see what it's all about. I mean, (sighs) like I said, my favorite my favorite Broadway show. Uh, soundtrack albums are all for shows that I never saw because my parents played Les Mis incessantly and I really like that soundtrack <laughs> I've never seen it I uh, I played some of that for my daughter the other day <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know if it holds up but like if you grew up listening to it it's great but when you listen to it at face all you're like really <laughs> okay well I, I'm one of the six people that really like uh, Anne Hathaway's version of that song in the movie i have that in my itunes library her version I of the adore song it. From i the adore movie. it and i will i will abide no uh talking against it. i think it's really beautiful and so i played that for her a few times we watched a little bit of the movie and then i played her uh the confrontation i heard the movie is bad though people say that people say that about everything i'm so exhausted i'm so exhausted by how much everybody finds bad well it's yeah, just, like it, is I, it go? Did you read the book? Yeah, the book no, is great. But like, like, like that it wasn't a well executed movie. Like regardless of whether you think oh, a comparison <sighs> live show that it that it wasn't you know that it wasn't up to the standards it should have been. I mean, you know, we don't have feet of clay. We will not crumble and die if we go and watch something that is not a flawless implementation of another thing. Yeah. Well, I, I'm I'm holding out my streak of never actually seeing it. All I've ever done is listen to um, the music. I've I mean, never it's, seen. You know, it's really long. It's got Wolverine in it. <laughs> yeah, he's good. Got that angry guy. He's oh, he's great. That guy's super talented. Yeah, I wouldn't have anything to talk to him about either, but I would be totally Four, comfortable six, talking so to Peter Jackman. Why you train me up like a slave again? <laughs> yeah, I, I, and we didn't, uh, to, to my, from the last person on the list here, Paul and Storm, those guys, like, they're like, uh, it, it's it's bad to say this, but like, I came to know them because they opened for Jonathan Colton, which I'm yeah. sure they love talking about, but like, but it's the same type of thing where like, so the first time I saw them, they're, 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 oh, they're the opening band, and their first song is We Are the Opening Band. Which is a very good song about being an opening band, and it's very funny, and they're very clever, and they're very smart, and all their songs are very smart and very clever, and talk exactly to the to my sensibilities. Uh, they they've written the best song ever written about Star Wars. Probably it'd be very difficult for them for anyone to ever beat. Um, and it's, they're the type of people where you just like, they're how, they're just so smart and and funny you, and witty. You would and, get along so well with Paul and. 
musical and talented and it's all the th- like when you're a bunch of nerds and you're just sitting around and hanging out with other nerds and snarking and stuff and you think you're funny and you think you're clever but you're not right it's so much harder to assemble that into a coherent whole that actually is good and when when you see that done it's just so awe-inspiring and when it connects with you because it is about some tiny little topic area that you and you know a fraction of the world's population is interested in but you're really interested in it it's just such an amazing experience and so i think paul and storm would fall into the category of people who i'd want to thank like amy Mann. can we make this happen no i can't ever meet these people i never go anywhere anyway this is the great thing yeah hobbit yeah, you don't have to, I don't have to worry about it. It's not like I'm going to run into them when I'm walking around the streets of San Francisco when I'm going to eat uh, House of Prime Ribs with... Uh, oh, I run, run into them all with, the time. With, with John Hodgman oh. and uh, just, you know, run into... It. So you, I'm not going to let you get out of this without telling me about meeting R.E.M. Because no. you did... You no, did, no we're, we're broken up for two weeks. No, you did, t- you did tell me... I met him at an them. after party. It's no big deal. I said, hi, I enjoy your work, and I moved on. Because that's what you do. All right. Everybody I just, acts I mean, like there's a magic formula. So, but, so here's the thing, though. Because you know these people i have a i have a friend who has been very good friends with michael stipe from very very early on and like would like go do vacation things with michael stipe and we went to you know to shows and one time i we went backstage and we met him and it was nice and that was it we had a little bit of cheese dip and moved on you've got that in though like you it, there is a potential i have for a, I you have to a meet that, to meet those people like, in a in a scenario in which you are not meeting michael stipe in which you are just a guy and he's just a guy and you happen to be in the same place. That there's a potential. It's not easy for that to happen. I don't understand this line of questioning, sir. What 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 is it you're trying to prove that I do or don't have? What I'm saying is that it is possible. It, it is conceivable for you to have established a relationship with members of REM the same way you have a relationship with John Roderick. It's just some guy. Conceivable. This is just a quickie thing. This right, is not right. Like, no, I know, I know. I'm, I'm not right. saying it did happen, but I'm saying it's po- And the reason it's possible is because you know somebody as just a regular guy who knows them as just some regular person. It's also that I'm not as intimidated by you, by these superhumans. I know they're just regular people. I know. And you you throw a vibe as a complete weirdo when you act the way that mm-hmm. you're acting. That's if true. If you go up and meet anybody... No, no, I'm not trying to be critical, but I'm just trying to say, like, and I, and I understand because I've been a super weirdo. Ask Andy Anatko. But like it's if you just go up and talk to somebody like they're another human being, it doesn't have to be weird. I well see that you are coming from a position, a weird position from my perspective, uh, starting from the assumption that other people will like you and be interested in you, which is fantastical. <laughs> it's a fantastical position. I'm like, I don't, like it's hard for me to even relate to. Okay, I take it all back. It, I love you. You know what I mean? It's hard for me to even relate. But like, but honestly, you are. I mean, because. I mean, people like Merlin. Merlin, like, you know, you know what I mean. Like, not that you're just the world's most friendly person and an outgoing grace. Like, I, I'm, I'm almost not, the world's most friendly person. I, but but, I'm but very what I'm saying is, like, you're comfortable Ugh. meeting people, uh, just strangers in the street. Like, just yes. you know, you're oh, you're okay with people. And I'm the opposite of that. I'm not okay with anybody. I'm not okay with people. Forget about power dynamics. Forget about fame. I don't want to meet anybody. I don't want to talk. I'm uh, I'm like Larry David. Like Larry David, you know, resonates with with a certain subset of people. And yes. me, like that's that's me, right? Only he's more personable than I am. Like more people like Larry David because he's funny, right? <laughs> like, it, you know. So if you're coming from that perspective, you're already at a disadvantage when talking to anybody. Whereas at the very least, you if you can convince yourself to get out of, oh my god, it's John Lennon. If you could ever get yourself out of that headspace and just get into, let me go back to normal Merlin mode where I just meet people on the street and they like me because I'm nice and personable. If you can get to there, you're golden. There is no there for me, so I can't. You know, you know, it's not. It's just not going to happen. Like I don't. I'm not no, good. I'm going to make it happen. Meeting people. No, you're you're going to meet some people. I'm not meeting anybody. They they don't want to meet me. I don't want to meet them. Oh, they want to meet you. No, they don't. 
So, I've had text messages. I've gone back and forth. You, I'm, I'm setting you up with some people. No. So you, uh, you, the only one you can do that with is John Roderick because he's not famous to me. So, and he doesn't want to meet me because I yelled at him too much. No, no, no. We just we need to find the right vehicle for us. Yeah, because I think I, I feel like I can hang out with John. I could. We could no, really think, help. Think e- you can, we could really help, help each other could, there. He needs some help. I need help. He needs help. You need help. All three of us, really. I'm just glad I got to meet you eventually. It's a long road. It's not that impressive. Not really. No. Mm-hmm. 